As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a More Than Just Podcast production. Welcome to this podcast, Season 5, Episode 5. My name is Tim Mitchell. I am in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined once again by Jonathan Kulan in Mississauga, Ontario. <laughs> Stupid Blue Jays. And we also have Jaime Lopez. <laughs> and we also have Jaime Lopez Jr. in Seattle, Washington. The victorious Jaime Lopez Jr., that is. How's it going? Well, not so good. Well, it's, it's, I guess baseball season's over, eh, John? Thank goodness. I couldn't take one more minute. You know, anytime they use the term historic to destroy, describe how your team leaves an event, it's probably not a good day. It was, histor- it was a historic trouncing? It was the single largest comeback in postseason history, which is oh, not really, really what, something you want to be associated with when, uh, when the Mariners do this to your beloved hometown Blue Jays. It's not a moment you want to participate in very much. So congratulations, Jaime. I hope you enjoyed the history. Do they have t-shirts and posters made or what? I don't know if it's going to end up being like the 28 to 3 thing that goes on for Atlanta Falcons fans who famously lost to the New England Patriots despite leading 28 to 3. I forget where it was in the game, but if you were leading at any point during the game, uh, you would think that you would probably have that well in hand. And uh, spoilers, they they lost. So I I can understand that Um, here. Uh, Mariners fans were just super happy to be in the playoffs. Uh, so we were happy with the outcome. We're less happy with where we sit now, where uh, the Astros, you know, are uh, just finding ways to beat the Mariners. Uh, they're a tough team. We we can put up runs. They can put up more <laughs> is how it's boiled down to, to it. So, uh, uh, you know, there's still... Th- hypothetically potentially three games left but it's uh it's not looking too good we might get eliminated so we're sitting here on friday we might get eliminated tomorrow in a in a clean sweep but not not without putting up a uh a, a rocky balboa style you know you know toe-to-toe with the champ sort of thing so i'm not sure is he rubbing it in john is this no this is not in? rubbing it in this is being very very 
practical and pragmatic around it that like uh you know the Mariners show that they're a very talented team um the Blue Jays are obviously a very talented team the stuff just went the right way look if you had told me hey guess what like the turning point uh in the game is this complete fluke collision in the outfield it would be like you're crazy there's no way it's coming down to that like that's a weird yeah. thing to have happen um so uh, that's that's why they play the games man that's why they play the games nobody knows what the heck's going to go on yep well and ideally that's why you play a multiple game series because that eliminates the randomness and focuses on theoretically the best team over a certain amount of time wins but at a best two out of three not really like that you kind of just one bad bounce and you're toast. And then that's what that's what happened. They they were outplaying Seattle until they weren't, and then they lost. But I'll say in that game, I, I was like, man, Robbie Ray is like the deepest undercover uh, double agent I've ever seen to like leave a team <laughs> <laughs> so he could get them into the playoffs just to secretly tank against his home team, uh, his, his previous team. Uh, I was very unhappy for most <laughs> of that game until it, you know, turned out uh, to be a victory. So it was wild, man. It was wild. Um, yeah. And that's the thing is, you know, I think what you're hoping for in those series, especially because, you know, realistically, both our teams are wildcard teams. They weren't the favorites going in. I think what you hope for is, you know, make a good showing. And unfortunately, that's where my team kind of fell short. But again, you should be really proud of the Mariners. Like, they, they play their butts off. Like, it's, it's you know. It's good. I was kind of hoping that they would uh, give give Houston a run for their money because I'm in the anyone but New York and Houston camp. Uh, can't stand the Yankees after my entire lifetime of them being in the same division as the as the Blue Jays and um, and Houston are cheaters. So you know, there's that. But yeah, it's uh, unfortunate. But what are you going to do? I don't know. Let's talk about something we can control. That's science fiction. There you go. We can totally control that. All right. Cool. So, so we'll start off. We don't have much fact check this week, so we'll just dive into the headlines. I'm thinking Jonathan up first. You did you post this link from Star Trek News at NYC? Yeah, it was kind of everything, right? So, so it sort of covered off what you had flagged in there and, and everything else. But, but yeah, I, last one was the New York Comic Con, and as part of New York Comic Con, there was a, a bunch of Star Trek news that came out of that. You know, we got another trailer for Card. Um, which which Tim will talk about in a second, and we also got a little bit of you know casting news and and a few other little tidbits. So um, I'll just I'll rattle them through here, and you guys can let me know what you think. So uh, some new cast members for the upcoming season five of Discovery. So we got Callum Keith Rennie, um, Elias Tufexis, and Eve Harlow joining cast. Um, so uh, you know, interesting to get a little bit of uh, new blood mixed in there. We got uh, Ronnie Cox coming back as Edward Jellico in Star Trek Prodigy. That was exceedingly random. Um, interesting. Uh, of course, he, he was uh, in, you know, uh, the, famously the Captain Jellico who replaced Captain Picard for a couple episodes uh, as Captain of the Enterprise. And um, we yeah. got three new characters for the final season of Star Trek Picard, including a little legacy. So we got Amanda Plummer, of course, the great, talented Amanda Plummer. And then Micah Burton and Ashley Sharp Chestnut are coming on as Jordy LaForge's daughter. Uh, Micah, of course, being really LeVar Burton's daughter. So that's kind of cool. And uh, yeah, that was sort of the, the big stuff that came out of New York Comic Con. What do you guys think of all this? Yeah, it was interesting in the trailer when, when he sort of, Picard says, you know, get us out of here. 
LaForge and, and she answers saying, right away, Captain, kind of thing. Even though like a split second before that you had seen Geordi LaForge. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting to see the old, uh, but this is, this is sort of, it's funny because this, uh, this reminds me of the, um, the later uh, original series cast, you know, when, when they were pretty much geriatric, you know. Um, not that these guys are geriatric per se, but them coming back to sort of reprise their roles because in you know in reality they would have all gone off to desk jobs and you know admiralties and all that kind and of retirement stuff. like realistically I, yeah. I get that you probably live a lot longer so you're probably not going to retire until you're in your who knows what 80s 90s hundreds but you know patrick stewart is in his 80s you know it, it's funny because people have made that comparison well it's kind of like those last few star trek movies where they were starting to show their age a little bit i'm if you step back from it and you realize that Patrick Stewart is older than any of those actors were at any point in any of those movies, he's just wearing it well. It's uh, it's pretty funny to sort of realize, yeah, this is one of the oldest actors we've ever had in, in these kind of things. Yeah, I kind of wonder, like, how old is he compared to, say, like, like the original series cast? Is he... Because Shatner's up there too, right? Shatner's in his 90s. Oh, he's in the 90s, okay. Right. What about, what about like, Sulu? Uh, I don't know. Spoilers on. We'd have to look it up. Do we have a Do we have a lower deck uh, link here somewhere? Wasn't there a lower deck um, trailer? First decay is eighty five. Eighty five. Okay. And that, and how old is Stuart? So they're they're in the same age range, is what I'm getting at, right? Yeah, for sure. Patrick Stewart is eighty two. Yeah. Are we, did we Did we not see a lower deck? Uh, oh, I guess it's is it next week's lower deck that I'm thinking of with George Decay, where we have another crossover. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, Decay was in. This week's episode, right? Oh, this week. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. We'll talk about that later. But I mean, cool. there's yeah. a difference between a, an acting performance and voice performance. I think I don't mean to diminish one or the other. I just think they're different levels of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's involvement. Yeah, exactly. I see what you're saying. Right. Yeah. yeah, it's like the chicken and the old story of the chicken and the pig. When it comes to breakfast, the chicken's involved. Pig is committed. committed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah, uh, yeah William Shatner's ninety-one. Ninety-one. Okay, cool. Um. Yeah, so Jaime, what did you think about these two trailers? I thought it was pretty... Uh, three trailers, three trailers. Uh, you know, pretty pretty neat to see this stuff. Um, I think it's pretty exciting to see uh, everything that's hypothetically going to be in uh, Star Trek Picard Season 3. Um, the the disco stuff was a little too uh, too light on details to sort of figure out what's going on there. You know, that crew tends to get into to large galaxy ending kind of thing. So that's kind of what I would have I would have expected anyway. So the trailer didn't uh, really fill me in on anything more related to that. So I feel like the, the Picard one was one I was a little bit more interested in because it showed a whole lot more of what's apparently going on. Plus, we know it's the final season, too, right? Yeah, it's got that that sort of extra angle to it. So here's a question. So this series already has the ignominious distinction of being the final death of data which is you know i mean theoretically he was killed off in the nemesis but here we get sort of the final nail in the coffin for for the end of uh, picard season one do you think they have the stones to kill any more people off from the original cast mm, don't know well wait a minute so that was lore we saw in it the, was in the trailer right yeah. yeah so maybe they have to deal with him it's hard to say. Bring, bring, bring back the crystalline entity. Bring back the crystalline entity. <laughs> yeah. Maybe Kess will come back. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I, it occurred to me as I was looking at these faces, and of course, you know, they, they're going to put them all in jeopardy, but I was thinking, 
Well, it's kind of hard to already have like the, and they all lived happily ever after ending given that they've already killed data, who was such a seminal part of the show. But yeah, I wonder, I wonder if any of these characters or actors or, you know, uh, they want these characters to go out in a blaze of glory. I mean, Han Solo famously, Harrison Ford wanted Han Solo to die in Return of the Jedi, didn't get it. And then said, I'll come back and do this one last movie for a huge paycheck and you promise to kill him and I never have to come back. And then still came back as a, I don't know what, ghost? Vision? Memory, yeah. Uh, you know, so... Vision, memory, yeah. Yeah. Really bad uh, Leia clone? I don't know. Yeah. Tell me again how good that movie is. You're just, you know, whatever. Jaw jerpings. <laughs> All righty. All right. Uh, unfortunately, some sad news just this afternoon. We got news that uh, Robbie Coltrane passed away uh, at the age of 72. Um, of course, best known in sort of the genre circles for being the, the actor who played Hagrid in all the Harry Potter movies. It's probably his, his biggest claim to fame globally. Of course, in the UK, he's well known for the, the TV show, the, the TV detective show Cracker. And of course, he was in a couple of James Bond movies. He's been, a, uh, you know, an actor for a long, long time. Personally, I loved him in uh, this movie he did with Eric Idle years ago called Nuns on the Run, which he's very, very, very funny in. Yeah, it was really good. Um, yeah. yeah, where he's like, you know, uh, sort of a lapsed Catholic. They go and they hide out in a convent after they steal some money. And it's it's just a, a farce, but it's funny. And um which Whoopi Goldberg stole later. Well, right? yeah, same idea, right? Let's go, go hide it in a convent. But yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's just another blow in, in, in this sort of, you know, generation that we just keep losing talented actors. I mean, uh, you know, this, his influence is obviously huge, but, you know, obviously outpourings from fellow stars, you know, uh, you know uh, Emma Watson and, and you know. Uh, Daniel Radcliffe and all these people weighing in, J.K. Rowling, and um, and you know, right up to the first minister of Scotland was you know commenting on on social media. So yeah, I mean, it's definitely you know a pretty huge loss and, and disappointing. But uh, yeah, I mean, what a what a body of work and what a legacy this guy leaves. And you know, his portrayal of of Hagrid. You know, I I, I believe all things come around again. I'm positive that somewhere down the road they'll make more Harry Potter movies or they'll remake the originals or whatever. But uh, you know. For our generation, for the generation you know younger than us, and and for probably a long stretch of time, he's going to be hired, which is an indelible character. Yeah, it's same with Alec Rickman as Snape. Right? Sure. They're going to be not much you can you can't really replace them with other yeah other people, right? Yeah, I mean you know again, of course you can. You know uh, later in the in the news and notes, we'll talk about how you can replace people who die, but. Yeah, I mean, they are really unforgettable in those roles. They really made them their own, and it's hard to imagine anyone else being Snape. It's hard to imagine anyone else being, uh, being Hagrid, you know. But it'll happen eventually. Everything comes around. Oh, when J.K. Rowling sells the rights to Disney, all bets are off, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. Way to go. Um, we also got, as part of New York Comic Con, our first trailer for the Super Mario movie. Now... Mario. This trailer looks, to be fair, looks fantastic. It looks like, uh, you know, a little more polished version of some of the cutscenes that we see in the game. It's very sort of quirky and funny and epic in the whole thing. Looks fine. But that's not what people are focusing on, because, of course, they're not going to focus on that. Everyone's focusing on Chris Pratt. And Jaime, I know you've got you've definitely got some information here, but then I'm sure you've got some opinions, too. 
Yeah, before we go into those, because there's sort of two main things that the internet has sort of of keyed uh, keyed in on related to uh, the Mario character. Uh, before we get into that, there uh, there is, I think, a pretty good consensus that people liked Bowser, uh, uh, portrayed by Jack Black. Um, get to hear his voice. It doesn't sound like just Jack Black, so people were pretty happy with that. Um, there's the, like, 500 milliseconds... T- tops of uh, charlie day as luigi people were pretty happy with that it seemed like it was in line with the character and um key and michael key as toad people were pretty happy with that too no no complaints so it really does come down to the initial belief and still lots of uh, uh you know back and forth stuff on the internet about oh my gosh chris pratt is basically just chris pratt <laughs> doesn't sound at all like uh, a plumber from brooklyn uh, New York. By the same token, he doesn't sound like he doesn't. To me, it didn't sound like Chris Pratt. He just sounded like a guy doing a Mario voice. But but I guess the real question is: Are the people are the trolls on the internet? Are they the target market, or are you know the next generation of kids the target market? It's it's one of those things where when I first watched it, it's like a you know like a Rorschach test, right? It's like do you see a butterfly in this ink blot? kind of test where i admit that when i watched the trailer i was like hmm you know there's only like two lines from mario right it's like something like what is this place and you know, mushroom kingdom here we come right it's, it's very gotcha. minimal so from that and the first time i watched the video i i was like oh okay this basically sounds like chris pratt uh i didn't really think much of it because it wasn't that much of a, of a speaking role for the the trailer cut People went off on the internet, said, oh my God, it's just Chris Pratt. You're like, maybe he was just sitting on the toilet calling into a phone, <laughs> which is probably the funniest one I saw. And then other people who were defending say, no, I think there's like a, a, a slight Brooklyn accent. Maybe it's not great, but there is one. And somebody went through the effort of animating uh, Linda Belcher from uh, Bob's Burgers uh, with the same exact audio. I'm like, yeah, I hear it more now. It sounds even more Brooklyn. Isn't that weird? The same audio with a slightly different visual sounds very different to my ears. And now I cannot hear anything but the Brooklyn accent. I don't know. These things we talk about on the internet, man. That's uh, that was number one of uh, the the controversies. The other one came out a little bit earlier from before the trailer. And that was with the release of the poster. And people were like, Mario has no butt. That is so weird. Why is it completely flat? Like nobody expected him to have like, you know, like cakes back there. You know, nobody had like a like a, a dump truck back there. But it was a little weird that it was just like completely flat. Like he has no no gluteus maximus at all. Those <laughs> <laughs> those were the two subjects <laughs> they're swirling on the Internet related to <laughs> this uh, this kid's movie <laughs> for Super Mario Brothers. Yeah, and they've been merciless to like the people are taking this like it is, you know, we're, we're talking about the war in Ukraine. Like people are really invested in this. Like this is not <laughs> this is not that serious, but man, people are really invested in these things. Yeah. Yeah. Um you know, I think I think it could be a, a good movie. Uh certainly there you know, the the phone lines are open if Nintendo ever wants to pay or anybody out there, any corporation that can afford my $10,000 an hour consulting services where i can see what you've got and tell you hey here's a bad idea maybe you should change this part i probably would have said hey you should make sure the main character talks not at all or make sure he talks a lot (laughs) because it's going to be a big deal 
and they chose a, an uncomfortable, you know, middle ground that made everybody sort of think. Doesn't Mario in the game have sort of a really bad Italian accent? Yeah, there was a... Uh, like uh, is it Chris Martinet? I think is Charles. Who, Charles. Yeah. Charles. Charles Martinet. Who did it? But that's that's different to have the woohoo kind of thing when he's kind of just running around and jumping, or like it's a me Mario from okay. like the intro. And people yeah. said, imagine if you heard that the entire ninety minutes, it would be annoying. Just like people are like, well, what about the toads? It's like. <laughs> Like we, I can't even do the weird high-pitched voice that yeah. they do for the toads in the game. Like It'd be annoying to have that for 90 minutes. So I, I can understand some change. Whether they made the right changes and uh, is there, um, uh, what, what are people calling it, like uh, stunt casting or celebrity washing? Yeah. The most yep. negative term I saw. But like You choose Chris Pratt because that name gets you... You know, it gets you on to, to Jimmy Fallon and it gets, you know, the regular mainstream media talking about you like, oh, I, I could see that. I could see that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess Kevin Hart was busy. Right? <laughs> He's doing every other animated product right now. I, I yeah, I think the thing, you know, even, you know, my sons are in the demographic for growing up with Mario and modern Mario. And but, you know, even my youngest son was sort of saying you know, Charles Martinet's still alive, right? Like, it's not like they couldn't, you know, have found a way to say, listen, you know, we love you and your voice. You're a big part of the franchise. Let's just take it like down two notches for the, for the animated picture. But yeah, it, it's to it just, they completely did what movies do now, where it's like, let's cast a bunch of celebrities and try and piggyback off their fame. Right. But it's so unnecessary. Mm -hmm. Make a good movie, like make a good movie. I don't care who's doing the voices as long as the voices are done. Well, I mean, some of the most memorable movie voices over the past couple of decades have been ostensibly nobody famous. D Doug the Dog was one of the guys who works at, at Pixar. Uh, you know, the, the voice of uh, Edna Mole in The Incredibles was, was uh, I think it's Brad Bird himself, just doing a funny voice because they needed something to fill in the lines and everyone decided he was just great and kept it there. Like, you don't need famous, which means good. True. Yeah, but but that's that's if it's a, if it's a a role that like I mean, it, Incredibles was like starting from scratch, right? And Doug the Dog in Up was starting from scratch. So they did it. They did actually have Edward Edward Asner, right? Sure. So, but again, uh, not every role, you know, right? They had a name in that no. one. No, but 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 the key yeah. role, right? Or two key roles, but the the um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it's hard to say, like, because because. I mean, the way that Hollywood works is that, you know, stars attach themselves to these films. Who knows? Chris Pratt might have attached himself to the film earlier because he wants something for his kids to be able to watch, right? I mean, they can't really, maybe they're too young to run around and watch him defeat dinosaurs for, you know, three movies in a row, right? So, or or the Marvel stuff as, as Star-Lord, right? So, I mean, like, like uh, who is it? The, um, Antonio Banderas, you know, attached himself to Spy Kids because for the same reason, he wanted something for his kids to be able to watch, right? Yeah. So, yeah, who knows? It's just... I don't know the motivations. Weird, and I know I keep coming back to this as if it was a uh, a seminal moment in film history, but the standard was kind of set by Sonic the Hedgehog, um, and they didn't even nail it out of the gate, right? Like, they had to spend... The internet claims here five million dollars to redo the ugly Sonic as he became uh, dubbed <laughs> <laughs> the ugly Sonic CGI. And you would think that with, you know, a couple years behind and you, you see what happened to the first, you know, company that did this. Why not 
you know, learn from that a little bit. It feels like they, they felt kind of isolated. Because $5 million is, you know, it's not exactly chump change. According to the internet, this random site from Australia says that you could buy and a private island in the uh, Maldives with $5 million, or you could buy a Gulfstream G150 private jet. So that's that's what it costs for Sonic to redo its uh, its main character. Um, I'm kind of curious, you know, if we'll ever see or hear the behind the scenes, what's going on here with the Mario Brothers movie. Well, by the same token, you could take an African-American female actor, put her, dress her up like a bat, make a movie, and then shelve it. Is is like a weird tax shelter move. Yeah, and in 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 two, you know, both inclusive and extremely discriminatory things. You can cast two of the most beautiful women of color and have them dyed green in the case of Guardians of the Galaxy, or make them a CGI alien in the case of of the Star Wars latest trilogy in in Maz Kanata. or Avatar. Yeah, or, yeah, or yeah. Avatar. Like. Like again, I'm glad that these women are getting work. They deserve the work. They're amazing. But you know, hey, how about some actual representation? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I guess all the uh, the you know Brooklyn, New York plumbers are going to have no actor to identify <laughs> with on film. Right? I think they're just going to have to go for Team Luigi. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. true. That's true. All right. Speaking of not appropriate for this show, honey, what do you got for us? This is such a strange one. So this is Megan with a three for the the E in Megan. It is a horror movie that if I thought about what would I throw into a blender to get this movie, I think I'd take the concepts from the Haley Joel Osment AI movie and Eddie Furlong's character from Terminator 2 and something like, you know, the Chucky TV series and put that in a blender and now you basically have the idea for this movie that is this troubled girl ends up getting a uh, assigned a robotic doll friend called Megan that's supposed to be like the most sophisticated AI. And you can already guess that it goes bad, but it kind of seems like it goes bad in like a not a Chucky trying to take over her soul or kill her sort of way. It seems like it's actively like a Rottweiler protecting her in a way that makes no sense to a human and would make sense to an AI. Like it is like, you know, Terminator 2 style, like protecting John Connor, like even to a crazy extent, right? Like I'm going to shoot this person. No, 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 don't shoot him. Like that's not what you should do. And I'm also a little freaked out when I watch the trailer because I'm like, I don't know that this girl is CGI, the the girl robot. Um, I feel like they just put a mask on a kind of smaller uh, petite actress. Like, it's so weird and unsettling as a, a I don't know, a, a modern take on, 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 on where the world is going. Yeah, and it's interesting. Obviously, they didn't incorporate the three laws of robotics, you know. Um, but yeah, it's got that same sort of, you know, um, it, I mean, it definitely is a horror movie. I mean, like, it started out, I mean, I, you know, I kind of I kind of had a feeling it was going to go bad, you know, in the same way. I mean, it, AI also kind of goes bad in its own way. It's got that sort of Pinocchio kind of goes mm-hmm. you know, off on the, the day trip kind of thing happening with Pinocchio or with the AI. And because um, it had some unsettling moments in it, too. Right. But the. It reminds me of all those sort of the horror movies you see about the little orphan girl that gets adopted and turns out to be an actual, you know, woman that hasn't grown and, and runs around killing people. And th- I forgot the name of the show, the movie, or um, the word orphan comes to mind. But 
um, you know, the, typical of this kind of this kind of genre. I mean, it, for for us, it's kind of interesting because it's intelligent. You know, it's sort of that. You know, what what would happen if you built an AI and you and you gave it a bunch of rules, but maybe left some of the more ethical ones off the table, right? Um, you know, and it's it's kind of funny because the the inventor is is the aunt who admits that she knows nothing about kids, right? Um, so kind of you know just desserts as it were right yeah yeah uh this is a film that is coming out in that weird dead zone it's coming out on january 13th so oh so it's not a halloween movie right right why is this not coming out in yeah. halloween that that is that is yeah. bananas and it feels like um you know maybe they don't have a lot of faith in this movie but uh you know what it streams real good i'm sure so wherever universal stuff shows up nowadays i'm gonna have to look that up Probably yeah, no, it, it looks interesting. Oh, it's not going to the theaters. It's going to it's going to the theaters, you know, or Yes, uh in theaters January thirteenth. Uh but But wasn't there some sort of rule? Remember the the rule about um if you have if you if you have a really good movie, don't release it in August or in January because it's too close to the Oscars. Well, in January is a weird like again, clearly it's not an Oscar movie, so I don't think they have to worry about that. But it's also yeah, it, it it seems like that's the dumping ground, right? You put movies out there where you just kind of want to get them out there, try and make a couple bucks and then go to streaming or just put them out in streaming. So people will find it eventually. I, I think you're right, uh, guys. I think, I think this sounds like a great movie for next October when you're looking for something scary to watch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I looked it up. Apparently Universal Films as of December 9th of 2021 are going to stream exclusively on Peacock. Um, as soon as 45 days after the debut. So if you're doing the math, that is Monday, February 27th, 2023. So certainly by that Halloween of 2023, if you're looking for a film. So I'll get to choose between that and Mario, right? <laughs> I eagerly anticipate Jaime. I'm looking forward to finding out when you will uh, finally crack and get Peacock. What will be the tipping point on Peacock? So, I'm so close because I looked at the, the monthly price for Peacock. Uh, with ads the the cheapest here it's like five dollars i think and the price today of what it would take to rent um jurassic world dominion i was like oh it's basically the same price i guess i maybe i should sign up for peacock at least for the one month watch the movie i want to watch and then uh, rummage through the the dvd bins as they say to, to see what's what's there what else is on that service yeah, wasn't there something else that we could only see on Peacock, John? I forget what it was. Well, we're talking about uh, Quantum Leap, but that's available, obviously. Oh, Quantum. Yeah. But, yeah. That's on Quantum Peacock? Leap, I think, in the United States is uh, NBC Peacock thing, right? Oh, okay. I think so. I think so. So I tried to watch another episode of that. Didn't make it through. Have you been, have you been watching Quantum Leap, John, or Jaime? I have, and they're, they're tying it in more to uh, the original series. Yeah. Again, not not for everybody, but I am. So I'm looking for a new show that fits a particular model. We'll take 30 seconds here in this little this little side trip. So this is the fine the fifth and final season of medical drama New Amsterdam, and it is the right kind of dumb for this need I have, which is I've had a long day, my brain is toast. I just need to go watch some trashy TV, uh, and I don't want to call this. Um, you know, this continuation of Quantum Leap trashy per se, I think it's trying to be better than what network television sort of wants it to be. Like they didn't have to go this far into tying it into the continuity of the original series. 
but it does have a lot of uh, network television tropes in it that are they're kind of weird to get through. So I can understand why you don't like it, Tim. I feel like I'm embracing it as my, you know, my uh, guilty pleasure show to continue watching. I think for me, for me, The Rookie is my guilty pleasure show. I've been watching it for, what, five seasons now, and that's the Nathan Fillion, you know, adult cop movie, right? But, mm-hmm. I mean, and, and I, I told you guys years ago I swore off of hospital and police dramas because they're all the same, right? Um, In the same way. Like, they just, they don't, they don't really go beyond your typical stuff. In fact, like, the, my one complaint about the, the Rookie is there is no pandemic. There hasn't been a pandemic for the last two years, you know, and they're in the middle of L.A., which makes absolutely no sense, right? Not a single mask to be found. So, yeah, just complete. Uh, but, you know, I, I enjoy the show. But, yeah, if I if I hold if I hold myself to my own high standards, I shouldn't be watching that show. I think I think we've all had those shows, you know, we just it, they're so easy. They're so digestible. They're so, yeah, they're just they're mindless in, in a positive way. Yeah, so so New Amsterdam. I'm curious about the title. Is that is it a reference to New York? Yeah, it's the name of the public hospital in New York City. Okay, yeah, because New York was New Amsterdam originally, right? That's correct. All right. Well, some bad news from the world of Marvel films. Uh, coming off the heels of a really cool announcement that we were going to get uh, Hugh Jackman back playing Wolverine in Deadpool three, which got the internet a buzz and continues to feed meme upon meme upon meme. We got a little little bit of a shuffle this week with some of the announced releases for uh, the the Marvel film slate. So six movies: Blade, Deadpool three, Fantastic Four, Avengers, Secret Wars, and two currently untitled projects have all had their release dates delayed. Uh, you know, so they were supposed to start shooting, uh, this is a story in Entertainment Weekly, they were supposed to start shooting the Blade movie soon, but apparently that's been delayed, and that has sort of had a knock-on, because, of course, these stories are all somewhat interrelated as they build to, towards a crescendo like the two Avengers movies they've announced and all the things that are coming. So, so... Blade is coming out on November 6th, 2024. It was supposed to come out on November 3rd, 2023. We're supposed to get it just a little over a year from now, but it's now two years, two years ahead. That's quite a bump uh, to get to get knocked back. Deadpool 3 was supposed to be September 6th, uh, 2024. It's now moved to November 2024, November 8th. Not a huge bump, but again, a knock on of this. Fantastic Four was supposed to be out in November of 2024, but of course the Deadpool's there. They moved that to February 14th, 2025. Happy Valentine's Day. And Avengers Secret Wars was supposed to be uh, May 1st, 2026, which is that prime window, right? Like that's that's where the Avengers movies go. They bumped that all the way back to November of 2025. And then those two mystery projects uh, have also been bumped back. And now we're looking at... Um, one was supposed to be the February slot. Now that uh, that's moved until May of 2026. And uh, there's another one coming after that as well. So yeah, like it, it's, it's fun as a fan to have all these movies interrelated, but then you realize that it's a house of cards, right? If one thing goes wrong with one of them, it kind of does have these like pretty severe knock on up with having to wait an extra year just so they can get the slate lined up the way they want it to. And, you know, it's funny because there's been some criticism of this slate of 
uh, this phase of the Marvel Universe movies right now that we're in, people saying, well, it's kind of the weakest one we've had so far. And, you know, have we really come that far? You know, I think there was a lot of promise in this next phase. They've got people talking about, you know, hey, we're going to do Deadpool 3. Hey, we're going to do two new War Avengers movies, Fantastic Four, and then get, get them all knocked back is probably not what they were hoping for. Yeah, it's a pretty wild shuffle here for this stuff. Uh, we, we know the shuffle happened with um, the Spider-Man movie and the Doctor Strange 2 because COVID kind of really messed things up. Yeah. Um, I am a little curious what ended up causing these ones to bump so weirdly because you're right. It is uh, a whole tapestry they're weaving here and you can't just sort of randomly do it out of order. So kind of curious why, why they had to make these changes. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure over time we'll get some some insight into it. As I say, it's it's cool that they bring all these projects out and have this cohesive universe, but it does not come without a price, right? Right, right. And speaking of the MCU, uh, we also got news this week. Uh, there's a rumor going around, which was reported by uh, a bunch of different outlets, um, and it's being credited to the reporter Jeff Snyder, that Harrison Ford is going to replace William Hurt as Thunderbolt Ross in the, Thunder, the Thunderbolts movie. Uh, I I don't know how to feel about this, so I, I guess we have to discuss whether we want to get into spoiler country. Because in the article that I've got linked in here, they do get into the spoiler of it all, which is just that Thunderbolt Ross is a bigger and more important character than he's been portrayed as so far in the MCU. In the MCU, he's kind of this schmuck who chases the Hulk around at first, and then is like trying to cram the Sokovia Accords down the throats of the Avengers. And he just, he's not, he's not a sweetheart, but in the Thunderbolts, he has much bigger role to play. And so this isn't a necessarily a small role for Harrison Ford to take over. So I'm not sure how to feel about this. I, I'm, 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 I will probably have to include the fact that I'm not terribly excited about a new Indiana Jones movie coming out with, I believe, 81 year old. Uh, Harrison Ford, who has kind of mumbled his way through the last couple decades of his career. Uh, I, I'm not, I'm, I, he is the biggest movie star of my entire lifetime, hands down. From, you know, his, his rise to fame really coincided with my boyhood, you know, youth and manhood. He is the single biggest movie star that my life has intersected with, hands down. Been in more big movies, played more big roles, you know. Blade Runner, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, you know, Patriot Games, you know, uh, it, there's so many indelible roles, plus all the other stuff that he's done that are, you know, tremendous roles. It, you know, I I don't want it to just be completely sounding like ageism, but I just have not loved a lot of the performances I've seen in the last number of years. And I'm not sure that I'm excited that he might be cast in this role. Yeah, well, maybe Chris Pratt was busy. Um, I think Chris Plummer was gone already, so you know he was off. I I don't disagree with you, Jonathan. I I am a little curious who you would end up um, casting instead to replace William Hurt. Ooh, you have an opinion? Ooh, good question. Well, so I I literally Google searched, and it's the most uh, you know superficial way, but it it sort of brought to mind something that had like who I had picked was was on this list. So when I Google searched that, I ended up with an IMDB page that says similar faces on the screen. So William Hurt is 
the same as William Hurt. All right, cool. That's fine. Um, Jeff Daniels, which is who I thought might make a good choice to replace, uh, was number two on the list. Scrolling through this list, I'm like, okay, um, I could see a uh, uh, like a Kurt Russell or or and and bear with me here, Jeff Bridges. Now I understand. I understand that that causes some interesting things. It's a little weird, but they they just don't even have to mention it or have to have She-Hulk mention it if you want. (laughs) Um, (laughs) As one of those, uh, we either don't mention it or it becomes a fourth wall breaking sort of moment. Yeah. So those those are my choices from uh, this very quick list. Yeah, I took a quick look. So Harrison Ford is 80. He turned 80 this year. I was I did a quick look to see actors over the age of 70 as sort of a ballpark. And, you know, there's a lot of prominent actors. You can decide where they fit. You know, uh, Morgan Freeman, Michael Caine, Clint Eastwood, Robert De Niro, Anthony Hopkins, Al Pacino, Ben Kingsley, Jack Nicholson, he's retired. Um, you know, Donald Sutherland, Dustin Hoffman. I'm like, eh, none of these are really working for me in the way that I was like, eh, I don't really see any of these people as, as Thunderbolt Ross. So I don't know. I don't know what the, I, you know, who popped into my head and it, maybe it's just cause he's played a, an SOB in so many movies, Harvey Keitel. He's kind of got that slicked back hair. You put a mustache on him. Yeah. Okay. I, I had to look him up cause I didn't know the name, but yeah, yep. I, I see his face. I'm like, yep, that guy, <laughs> that could work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I mean, Harrison Ford doesn't look anything like, like William Hurt, who, who played Thunderbolt Ross. And of course we passed away uh, early this year, but not that that's the most critical thing. I mean, they had two different guys playing, uh, you know, War Machine and they don't look anything alike either, but yeah, it's just, it's kind of weird. Maybe we'll feel differently after we see Indiana Jones five. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe we'll, we'll never maybe. see Indiana Jones five. All right, one more thing to hit before we uh, move into the main part of this show here, Hami. Yeah, got? the last one here is the the long, you know, talked about uh, ads tier for Netflix is launching on November third, two thousand twenty two, in a bunch of different countries: uh, Australia, Brazil, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, Mexico, South Korea, Spain, United Kingdom, and the United States. Here in the U.S., it is $6.99 a month to have an average of four to five minutes total of ads per hour, uh, broken up into, you know, the normal 15, 30 second uh, kind of thing that people like to do. Um, The pricing is surprisingly high in the United States compared to, like, the rest of the world that I can do the the translation for. So, because we've got Canadians on the show, let me tell you, $5.99 Canadian? Is very cheap if it's six ninety nine US because uh, that is Google says four dollars and thirty one cents equivalent to the US. Ha! Take so, that, America. There you go. Yeah. The Australians were cheering in the comments on this uh, Verge article, like, "Oh my gosh, it's so cheap compared to what we thought it was going to be." Because we always get boned by the uh, the exchange rate. So, um, well, the first thing that comes to mind with this story is: Does Netflix want to lose more people watching their network? Well, it's, putting ads in it, the way it's intended. And I'm not saying it's going to work out that way necessarily, but it's intended to increase the addressable market because they've continued to go up and up and up each year for holding the line as like no ads, no ads. Well, because what it costs like a billion dollars to make whatever movies they made recently. So it's got to be a couple more bucks a month. Right. And that has left out the people who are like, man, I can't 
I can't pay like 20 bucks a month for this thing, but I might go the El Cheapo route and say $6.99 a month. Yeah, that's why that's why nature gave me a smartphone so I could do something during the 30 seconds you're showing me an ad for Budweiser. Or heck, you know what? Instead of pausing, maybe I just will go, you know, urinate the Budweiser <laughs> from, <laughs> from my uh, from my body. Um, so it it kind of makes sense to me. Like I've got the the cheap uh, Hulu on the one dollar a month uh, Black Friday deal from last year that's coming up. I've hold on. I've, I've been a longtime subscriber to the um, the cheapest tier for Paramount Plus, so I always see ads for Star Trek and stuff. Oh, do you? Okay. So it, I could see it working. Will it alienate people? Well, if you were already somebody who didn't want ads, then you got to, you know, back up the truck full of dough and pay your monthly fee or uh, deal with the, the, the blight of ads for a significant savings in price. Uh, it does mention here in the article that uh, you won't have access to the entire catalog, but apparently that's not because Netflix was being, you know, you know, greedy punks, it's because of the rights agreements that they have that they are actively working to try to resolve. Hmm. We'll have to see how it goes. I don't know. I mean, I already pay a hundred and something dollars a month for regular network cable television, which has commercials, right? So, which I suffer through if I'm watching something live, but yeah, it just seems odd. Like in this, in this age, you know, where this app, app on your phone age, where you either get something free or you get it with ads, right? Or, I mean, if you get something free, you get it with ads. If you pay for it, you don't get ads. I mean, that's sort of the model, right? Um, it's a, it's an odd odd thing. I guess you're... Because, I mean, like, <laughs> you know, I, I would think that adverti- using advertising as a way of paying for something that, you know, it, it's. I guess they're not making enough money off of the lowest tier. Is that what the... the the problem that Netflix is suffering from. I think it's that they're hemorrhaging the first time. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. It's hard to charge that premium price when you are no longer the only, you know, the only show in town. Um, and Disney came in with a very aggressive price of like, was it seven or $8 when they started out? They've gone up a bit, but they could double their price and they would still be cheaper than Netflix. They, they kind of had no choice, but to do this. Arguably with their content too. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the other thing, I, I don't know if you mentioned it, Jaime, but the, um, the quality of the Netflix for this tier is is low too, right? Apparently it's... Yeah, it's kept at 720p. Yeah. You can't download, you know, if you're going to go on a, um, a an airplane trip or something. So there's tons of restrictions, as you would kind of expect. Uh, I've, I've dealt with those myself on um, both Paramount Plus and Hulu, where I was like, all right, I'm going to go on this airplane trip. Maybe I'll get... Nope, can't download those. All right, Netflix and HBO Max it is. <laughs> and and, and uh, Amazon Prime. So um, I, I, I think it's a little weirdly petty of like, how often would somebody really need to to be downloading the videos to really make it worth the, aha, well, I guess I'll pay for the higher tier for the video downloads. Um, I don't know. I I'm, I'm sure they have a rationale around it because it's more than just one of these providers that does it. You would think if it was not tied to rights or not tied to some really sp- uh, specific user research, marginal research, there would be somebody that'd be like, yeah, whatever, our cheapest here, go ahead and download. Why not? In fact, we download the ads too, so good luck. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to be watching those Budweiser ads on the plane. Yep. 
Interesting stuff. All right, well, let's move on to our main part of the show where we talk about we're talking about a few things these days. This these days, but uh, obviously we're talking about Star Trek Lower Decks is up first. Uh, my elevator pitch for this episode of Star Trek was uh, the the crew goes the extra mile to show why sequels aren't always better. I mean, how, what was your what was your pitch for this one? Mine was a little bit more like the Netflix style one of uh, Boimler is distracted from his own hollow novel when Commander Ramsim gives him bad news about his transporter twin. Mm. So this was a, a follow-up to last season's very epic episode where uh, Mariner wrote a holodeck program wherein she can go vent her frustrations and kill her, kill her uh, co-workers. Uh, this time, Boimler's taken the reins and done it. Uh, but of course, it, it um, as you say, it goes kind of sideways when he gets this bad news uh, about his, his transporter twin dying and so we don't know that until later in the episode but that's obviously skewing things so it's kind of half them going on this adventure and half him having this sort of existential existence as we go through the episode and it um it, you know it, it still added up in spite of the fact that you know like they, they do tread a really fine line here in spite of the fact that they were dealing with you know what's the purpose of being here you know do i really matter in the grand scheme of things all these existential things that boims is going through they still made me laugh a lot in this episode there's a lot of good stuff in here yeah it's fun time it's fun like it's a holodeck episode right i mean where you know the the crew is you know acting out their fantasy roles of being in charge of ships and and uh, you know tendy we find out through the story that tendy wants to be a captain at some point um, but yeah, the whole, I, I love, I love when there's conflict or whatever, and then somebody says computer arch and then solves the problem and the, the arch shows up and away they go. Right. Yeah. Nice character moments for stuff that, you know, hypothetically is, uh, you know, a fun change of pace for them. Right. It, it isn't meant to be taken too seriously of what they're doing. It's, you know, sort of cheesy on purpose. My best pew 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 was the the grav cycle sequence <laughs> yeah. where you've got the you know, exploding uh, grav cycle and a, a backflip to land uh, attendee landing on uh, Rutherford's grav cycle and stuff, um, and to have it be you know, sort of built around her really coming out of her shell as a character and like having aspirations, ambitions, coupled with the sort of um, almost nihilistic take that boimler suddenly has when he realizes his his transported twin died this pointless death or so he thinks right um kind of kind of interesting to see how that's put in around uh mariner being like what like th this is so dumb that guy's just like made up by the holodeck wait this isn't even the main plot we should go over and do the the grab bikes and do all these other cool things but it's very meta too like that is also a beautiful commentary on modern gaming too right where it's like there's this grand epic storyline that people took hours and hours and hours and hours and hundreds of people to craft. And you're like, I'm going to try and catch that horse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I remember the first time I played, oh, I want to say it was like Elder Scrolls or one of those games way back when I was doing video game stuff for the, for the website and the paper. But I remember cracking it open and they were like, you know, all of these side missions it seemed like you couldn't go four feet without somebody being like, would you like to come over here and try this thing, sir? And I just remember thinking, like, you could just spend all your time doing absolutely nothing that had anything to do with the core construct or mission of this game. And then it came true later on because my uh, elder son 
was playing Red Dead 2, which of course is this huge sandbox game. And the, the amount of time he spent dressing up his horse, I'm like, man, really? Yeah. But, and I did, I love the sequence where it's like, you know, uh, it doesn't even have a side plot. It's loading right now. It's waiting. It's killing time, but it loads side plot for you. <laughs> uh, I did, uh, I, I liked the, uh, the Kirk thing. Tim, Tim, that was my best pew 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 when it tells about the Kirk thing. I think, yeah, what is it? I think, is it Bumler starts, starts wailing on somebody? Yeah, he starts wailing on somebody, and she's she's like, you know, we can do this, and we can do that, and then the, finally he starts wailing on this on this other character, and uh, she says, oh, yeah, we can do the Kirk thing. That'll I do. I love that right? the Kirk maneuver is like, solve it with your fists. Uh, you and I both picked that. Exactly. <laughs> like, no diplomacy. Yeah, here absolutely. Here, right? um, I did pick a couple of, of Easter eggs out. They mentioned um, Winger Bingston. There's a character that's popped up in a few previous episodes. He's the one who's like the song and dance man. They talked about seeing his show. At one point, Mariner makes a crack about like, oh, somebody took a, a Winger Bingston class. So again, funny, like self-reference to itself. And, uh, and the planet that they go to at one point is, is Tadashiori uh, 9. Uh, well, Fred Tadashiori is the guy who does the, the actor who does Shacks on the show. <laughs> so that was pretty funny. Yeah. Oh, really? I see. The nice touch I liked was was the the I don't know if you guys noticed oh, yeah. it, but there was film grain in the in the in some of the sequences and then what caught my eye was the cigarette burn when you know after watching Fight Club I've really tuned into every time I see a cigarette yeah. burn on a, in a show right because I mean like it's pointless here in a digital show right. Well, we can talk about that and later in the episode. Maybe we'll talk about Werewolf by Night because they had some stuff in there too. Oh, I was just gonna say that the 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 aha moment I had was just uh, so this episode turns out his existential crisis that Bomber goes through turns out to be based on a lie, right? Yeah, that ending scene, uh, section thirty one, involved in nuttiness with a with a cloaking defiant class, which they definitely should not have, right? So not on the up and up. I did love uh, the. You know, I love that this show says what we've all been thinking all these years. That they hand him his Section Thirty One badge, which of course is the the black version of the Star uh, Starfleet logo. He's like, "Hey, this is a super secret organization. Are we kind of tipping our hand when all of our you know logos are dark black?" And they're like, "We could just kill you again." And he's like, "No, no, I'm fine. I'm fine." <laughs> yeah, and we mentioned earlier that there was a sort of a nexus kind of uh, section of the the episode where you see. Kirk's farm and uh you know with the horses and stuff and it turns out it's not Kirk it's actually uh Sulu Captain Sulu who gives uh Boimler the advice and there were so many great I mean this this whole thing was was kind of mercilessly mocking the Star Trek sequel and sci-fi sequels in general you know from the original uh you know replicating the original fanfare with the the uh the opening credits and everything like that Straight to, you know, them going on this weird side mission and encountering the Kitty Hawk uh, as opposed to V'ger, uh, that the, the Kitty Hawk, mm-hmm. that was, oh my mm-hmm. God, I laughed at that. That made me laugh so hard. I was, I was actually thinking when I saw, when I heard Kitty Hawk, I was like trying to put it together and yeah, of course it was the Kitty Hawk, which, oh, that's just so stupid. It's so f- stupidly funny. Yeah. I laughed out loud. I was yeah. like, I knew pretty early on, I was like. That has to be Kitty Hawk, right? It's got to be a V'ger yeah, yeah. reference. And I just could not contain myself when he's knocking the dust off. It's this, <laughs> this like bicycle biplane <laughs> from a century ago. <laughs> like it had become sentient oh in some God. way. It doesn't it's make any so sense. Stupid, but God, it made me laugh. 
Yeah, no, again, this show is is so both loving to its legacy and so disrespectful at the same time. It is such a great highway act that I just it never never disappoints this show. Yeah, and then they roll they roll Stevens into the, the sick bay. <laughs> second and he's, time today. He's got radiation burns from from leaning lean the second time today, exactly. Yeah. And leaning against I did the, grab the, the one board. quote that made me laugh the hardest, <laughs> which was when they were talking about uh the the MacGuffin from this episode, which is the chronogami. And uh Mariner says, What does it do? Does it make an alternate cinematic timeline that runs concurrent to our own, but with different people playing younger versions of us? That again, just very meta, but perfect. Yeah. I was uh, a fan of seeing animated forms of the Sovereign mm. class, the Defiant class, and sort of the Galaxy class from the the schematics uh, or animation that they were showing. Uh, that was nice. And that led me into thinking about my big question, which is, will William Boiler's name, given that he died, come up in some sort of context for the USS Titan A in Star Trek Picard? Ooh, interesting. So he hypothetically died, uh, not really a heroic death, but he died while serving on the USS Titan. Will his name come up at all in the context of the USS Titan A, which is starring in Star Trek Picard? So that's one we're going to have to keep an eye out for as, a, as yeah, an Easter egg. That's a good thing, one. Like a, a William Boimler holodeck room or conference <laughs> room or something, right? Is like a way to honor him in a, in a you know, not, not too oh, fancy I, I kind really of way. I really hope they bring back uh, Jonathan Frakes as Rooker and... And have him wear like a black armband or just something, something just completely over the top, you know? <laughs> oh, that's good. That's a good call. All right. Should we move on to the, the She-Hulk season yes. finale? Yes. Oh, it's really cool. It starts off with a, with a, like a, a reference to um, the old TV, TV show Hulk. Yep. The Incredible Hulk yep. with Bill Bixby and uh, Lou Ferrigno with the sort of 70s introduction and with... Uh, uh, Tatiana Maslany playing sort of, I guess, me, or cloned into the into the Lou Ferrigno scenes, you know, showing how, um, you know, She-Hulk has gone off the rails much in the same way that, uh, you know, don't get me angry. It's the, like the irrational angry Hulk, kind of yeah. Thing. Uh, that Bill Bixby and, yeah, yeah, definitely. Pretty cool. But the yeah, very it's funny, there's a nice little homage in there, too, because the, the name of that show is The Savage She-Hulk, which, of course, was the name of the first book that ever uh, Jen Walters' character appeared in was The Savage She-Hulk. So, yeah, nice, nice little reference in there. Hmm. It, um, yeah, it, it was just, again, it's a weird, this is a weird, this was a weird episode. So my elevator pitch was uh, Jen's life is an irreparable, irreparable mess. Good thing the rules don't apply to her. So uh, the whole thing was, that it was supposed to basically be this culmination of all these storylines, the the misogynistic group, the intelligentsia that had, you know, tried to destroy her life. She got in trouble for using her powers, all of these, you know, supporting storylines. And they basically, they brought it all together. And then they were like, nope, this isn't working. Jen sort of breaks the fourth wall, climbs through the Disney Plus app and into the back door of, of Disney headquarters and then like confronts her creator. And, and again, a very sort of, um, you know, and which would the whole part of naming that thing Kevin after Kevin Feige made me laugh hysterically. K-E-V-I-N, yeah. You mean K-E-V-I-N. But uh, mm-hmm. it was really weird. I, and I'm I'm still trying to reconcile whether it worked for me. What, what did you guys think? Oh, that was hilarious. So we should kind of, like, for a second there, I thought my, my uh, 
my app had had frozen because it went back to the menu, right? <laughs> yeah. And then I realized the, the menu wasn't correct. And I mean, I I like that. I like the whole. I like I like the part where she turns to the to the yeah. audience and says, "Is this what you want?" Like with all these, you know, you know the the kingpin turning into like a, a Hulk guy by just injecting her blood, her radioactive blood, and and um, yeah, suspiciously like point, this right? super soldier serum. Um, yeah, soldier serum. That's that's what it was. Yeah, and um, and the the Tim Roth yep. character, mm -hmm. um, Abomination. Is that what it's called? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sort of uh, all sort of beating each other, whacking around, and whatever. That's when she leaves the show yeah. and goes and confronts the writers. And then we find out that Kevin Feige or K E V I N is actually a sentient robot that's been making all this amazing Marvel well, stuff. The fact that it's a robot years, that doesn't right? sleep explains how it could do all the work that Kevin Feige's been doing the last fifteen years. Right, right. With attention towards yeah. like, hey, it's expensive when you change, so uh why don't you just do it when the camera's not on you? <laughs> like right now, while I'm talking, the camera's on me was uh kind of an interesting uh you know, it was weirdly sort of meta and, and i did have the big question come out here of like are the disney plus menu and kevin feige canon <laughs> in the mcu now i don't know how that works yeah. now <laughs> yeah it's uh it was it was definitely a weird one i you know i must admit as they were trying to sort of bring those storylines together i was sort of like well it's that's a weird coincidence that like they'd be having this meeting at the same place where she showed up and you know this is not I hope this isn't what this is really mm -hmm. because it just this would be a really disappointing ending. And then, of course, you know, uh, the 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 leader, Todd, the leader guy, he's stolen her blood and he injects it into himself. And I thought, well, this would be a really weird way to introduce the concept of the character from the comic books, the leader, who is this sort of gamma enhanced uh, person. But the gamma basically, instead of giving him like massive muscles, enhances his brain. So I thought, oh, is, is he going to like inject this in his arm thinking he's going to get Hulk mm. powers, but in fact, he is. It's going to just make his brain pop out of his head, and he's going to become super smart or something. I'm like, well, that's a. He seems like a really weird, weaselly supporting character to suddenly become the leader. The leader's supposed to be like, you know, yeah, more menacing than all this. And then, of course, they sort of, you know, record scratch and it stops, and they're like, "What? This doesn't make any sense." I'm like, "Good, yes, I agree. Thank you for doing that. That's so good because." It was really kind of going off the rails there for a bit, uh, you know, and then, yeah, Bruce shows up and again, having Bruce show up to sort of come to her rescue again in the show that has been all about how Jen is finding herself and coming into her own and doesn't need, you know, these men to carry her. She's an independent person. I was like, oh, it, this has gone really badly. And of course, it's all a joke, right? So, yeah, no, it was it was, uh, it was a weird way to do it. But in the end, probably more ultimately satisfying. I love that she sort of takes the ownership of it. She's like, well, if we're going to do it, let's do it my way. I use the law to put these guys in jail. I have my really hot boyfriend show up at the end for no good reason to do nothing but come to you know a meal with my family. And, you know, I get my name cleared and I get to be She-Hulk again. That's how they do the reset. I'm like, yeah, yeah, OK. Yeah, that's a much better ending. More appropriate for the show, right? Yeah. It fits in with the wackiness yeah, uh, of the show, and the the show itself made the point that She-Hulk, the show, is not about punching, right? We talked the previous week that like she literally can't punch her way out of misogyny or uh, revenge porn or anything like that. So I, I appreciated that it subverted expectations by going into 
the weird um the villain has the same powers as the hero trope uh that Marvel's been criticized about and brought up in the show and that it had the 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 big action sequence which was the pew 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 of like come at me bro and and the abomination showing up and there's a misunderstanding where the hulk shows up just assumes that that bad things are happening he starts punching um i i appreciated that they subverted that and said no 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 that's not what this is about this is about uh a hero that ever really wanted to answer the call they just wanted to to live their life and and deal with the the ramifications and i also appreciated the fact that abomination was never evil in this uh in this show right he truly was reformed yes he did violate his parole um he showed up seemingly to that uh intelligentsia um meeting convention whatever it was um basically as a guy who's just paid to be there to give motivational speeches it seemed like like he had no clue what was going on yeah. and they just paid him to be abomination so he shows up kind of appreciated that yeah yeah no and it, it, it made sense within the context of, of who he is and, and the fact that he was just like yeah no i made a mistake i'm going go back to jail for a while or not again because that's the, the ps scene to this one right yeah yeah i, I wasn't yeah. sure if it was a nice little uh turn of phrase when he asked wong oh were you stuck yeah. in another show uh you know they they answer it as like oh yeah like you know there's so much tv to watch i'm like mm, maybe wong's gonna be on another show maybe that's them telling us that he's gonna show up on another one of these disney plus shows yeah that or the abomination is gonna be in the next doctor strange movie mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well you know which would be things weird. haven't been going well for Carmitage. maybe they needed a little uh a little more muscle on, on the premises mm, maybe and so you your easter egg about scar is that is that a character so um bruce banner introduces his is that so son or yeah so or scar son? is a character from the comic book universe and in the comic book universe things somewhat similar to what happened with him in thor ragnarok happens he is basically exiled from earth by the illuminati and he ends up on this planet sakar and he ends up becoming a gladiator and he lives there for a long time and in with a woman that he falls in love with there they do conceive a child and later on that child uh comes around and, and you know it's part of the storyline here i'm where they're going to continue the storyline i'm not sure i, I was a hundred percent sure when he was like i've got a call from space i'm like that's a hundred percent going to be you going to pick up scar but it um how they continue this where they go with this i am curious like it's a weird thing to sort of drop in at the end of the episode and then be like to be continued i don't know where that character connects with the, the overall storyline i don't know where bruce Co- shows up next I, I just i'm i'm really curious to see how this plays out but it is interesting that to note that from the mcu perspective scar would have been not necessarily bruce's child but hulk's right so the whole time that that they were on sakar and they were fighting as a gladiator hulk was in charge not bruce so this would have been Hulk as Hulk conceiving a child with somebody. So this isn't no, this isn't really Bruce Banner's son. This is Hulk's son. Splitting hairs oh, okay. or no. Adams, yeah. as you prefer. It uh, is interesting to think about what that could mean for a character like Scar going forward. Yeah. yeah. All right. Move on to Andor, the conclusion to the third three-story arc. 
I went uh, I went for the ominous elevator pitch on this one, making it out alive. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. So this one was, as you said, a culmination of this three-episode arc. As about last week, they did a good job of really making us care about crew that Cass was going to go on this heist with, of giving them these backstories, of finding these connections. So as heists go, especially heists that involve Cassie and Andor, or, or missions that involve Cassie and Andor, it goes pear-shaped pretty fast. And, you know, as this episode is going on, you know, we see members of this 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 crew he's been working with start dropping as they go. And in the end, it's, uh, you know, it's a bit of a bloodbath. You know, like, there's, there's three of them that end up making it out and pretty bad. But true, but he only takes his the portion he was promised. Right. So. Right. Yeah, yeah. But he also has Nemec's manifesto, right? Yeah, this is true, yeah. 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 Nemec had been trying to sort of convert him into, you know, a believer versus a, a mercenary. And I guess that's the question that I had from this episode. Is is Nemec's manifesto the thing that sort of turns him from... Maybe. Maybe if he if he actually takes the time to read it, which he, I think he obviously will in the next episode or two. But... Or does, or does Nemec's manifesto get into the hands of somebody like... You know, rebellion. One of the heads of the rebellion, who does the temple says why we've got to fight back. Yeah, yeah. Because mm-hmm. it seems strange that they would have this such an earnest character. Is obviously he dodgically in in this, mm-hmm. but to have his legacy be that he was the one who sort of wrote the manifesto, very poignant. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and then and then um, Cassian Endor does a typical Cassian Endor when scheme turns on the crew and and says he you know let's take the money and run kind of thing yeah I, that's my my easter egg specifically is and this is the part that always kind of bothers me shot first guido shot first thing i i really i'm disappointed that that it's been lucas's legacy to verse it and say oh no he was defending himself because to me even as a even as a young boy my concept was when we meet han solo he is a mercenary he is a criminal he is somebody who to protect himself and the people around him would not hesitate to pull out his gun exactly. and kill somebody whole blood exactly that and that's always been my himself. issue with yeah that's it he's a badass and, and, yeah. and, well that's it is the idea that that it's not that he wants to kill it's that he's willing to kill if he needs to right. and that's mm-hmm. where i think we find Cass here too Cass isn't a murderer he's not cold-blooded it's not that these things don't weigh on him clearly they do and diego luna is such a wonderful performer his face his um, he conveys through his face and his eyes are so good you know it's it's not easy for him to pull out a gun and shoot somebody but the point is he is somebody who is not hesitant to make that quick call and make the tough decisions we saw it in rogue one where he realizes hey i can get out of this but this other guy can't and if this guy gets caught this whole mission goes sideways I have to kill this guy. And he does. And he, you know, he agonizes about it. And you know, it's not something easy for him. He makes that hard call. And in the same moment here, Cass shoots first. He's talking with Skeen and you're like, huh, this is really messed up that Skeen had, you know, betrayed them and was trying to get his money in the whole nine yards. And Cass doesn't hesitate. He just pulls out his gun and puts a hole in the guy. And I think that's important because it really speaks to who he is in this moment. He's somebody who will make a hard choice especially if it comes down to, 
you know, if Skeen is saying, hey, you and I could get out of here and take the money, we'll go to this private spot. There's no way Skeen isn't thinking, and then I'll put a hole in you and I'll have 80 million in credits, yeah, right? So yeah. he's he's doing the math in his head and he's like, hey, this guy is going to, you know, jeopardize me, jeopardize my place, probably kill me, no matter how this plays out. I have two choices. I can either try and get the job later, or I can, you know, deliver what I said, deliver, put a hole in this guy and walk away. And he makes Yeah. I think it fits pretty well with the the overarching theme of everything is gray in this uh story so the the first one i'll talk about since you guys were talking about nemec and uh andor uh cassian uh there's some point at which nemec before the heist that nemec's like sort of idealistically talking about essentially good and evil right like you know should we just you know, be thankful for like these scraps that the empire is giving us. And Andor looks him right in the face. He's like, do I look thankful to you? He's like, no, I'm just essentially not stupid enough to take on the empire. Right. I just try to survive is his standpoint. So he's, you know, neither good nor bad. He's just a person looking to, to exist and live and not fight in idealistic war. And we see a lot of gray here where, you know, the good guys here, um, you know, the, the, the protagonists of our show here, um, they, uh, they threatened to kill a kid, <laughs> right? The, the Imperial officer's family, right? Uh, would they have actually done it? We never get that far, but like that kid was, you know, an innocent in this case. And seeing that is interesting because this whole time they've been portraying the empire, or at least this part of it is not the, uh, cackling evil, uh, Emperor Palpatine twirling his mustache as more just like they're just here doing their jobs. Some of them are trying to be pretty good, figure out what's going on with these crimes. Some of them are, they're definitely jerks, right? They're uh, uh, nationalistic, species, racist, whatever you want to call it, but like they're not actively evil. They're just not necessarily good people, right? And they're kind of just living their lives well, too. There's one, there's, it's a good point, I mean, but there's one spot in this that takes it to that next notch. Like they're creeping in evil territory when the troops are walking towards where, uh, Val, uh, and, uh, Cinta are hiding and they're talking. If you listen to the words they're saying, they're essentially laughing about rape. <laughs> so eh, not good. It's right. these are. Cl- oh, sure. Sure. I'm not, I'm not saying that they were like, uh, it's shining upstanding people, but it seems less uh, black and white, good and evil but with very broad brushes, but more like, the I don't know the the commandant guy where he's very uh, condescending towards the the, the native peoples oh, yeah. and everything. He's like, I can't wait to get off of this backwater planet, and and yet he's got basic sort of problems. Like he doesn't want to admit that he's gotten fat. <laughs> That's why his uniform doesn't fit. Yeah. Right? Um, it it it's a it's a humanizing aspect that is interesting to see the the heroes mm-hmm. less than perfectly good. And the villains less than perfectly bad. I like where they're exploring with this. Yep. It's it, it, something I saw a few people commenting commenting online. I wish I could take credit for for noticing it first, but I, I this show so far has been especially in this art focused on people and not aliens. Right. You're not really mm-hmm. seeing a lot in this in this particular arc. And I you're right. It, it almost smacks a little bit of being speciesist. Like, why aren't the other races helping out or whatever? But of course, they're trying to be undercover, blending with the population. Like, and there's a random alien. But it is interesting 
And it's very grounding, I think, to take the alien element out of it, take the laser sword out of it, to take the sci-fi down to a more in the dirt kind of level on, on this mission. Because it really does increase the state. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 true. Uh, the one alien they did have, um, the doctor, his name is Doctor Quadpaw, according to the the subtitles. <laughs> yeah. Well, they worked hard. They worked hard on that one. That was his name. That was his name, according to. <laughs> I always run with the subtitles, and when he's like, you know, I I did my best. Please don't shoot me. I didn't kill the kid. I tried to save him. It says Doctor Quadpaw. Because there's a couple people talking at the same time, and <laughs> that is his name, Quadpaw, one word. Really? <laughs> Did we all have the best pew 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 as the escape flight with the Tie Fighters in pursuit? Like it, it kind of was the only oh, pew yeah, pew yeah. pew for the most part, uh, other than the shooting around the gold credits. Well, also the 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 yeah. sky display was kind of cool. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Even though it's not technically a pew pew, right? Yeah, but it really enhances the moment where they, you know, you see it all, this whole plot come together with, we're going to use this thing as the disguise. But it also was something, what I love best, and, you know, we talked about different shows in the past. You know, we talked about Founding Last, the Apple Plus, Apple, Apple TV Plus series. Not the best sci-fi series around, but to me, the thing I liked about it was it wasn't just piggybacking on everybody else's thing. And that's how I felt watching this part with the eye was, it didn't feel like something else I'd seen specifically. It was a unique vision and that I appreciate, especially from something as deep now as Star Wars, where we've had, you know, movies, galore and TV shows and comics and books and, you know, animated series and everything else to see something that's a unique vision. You know, when that starts happening and the sounds of it and the look of it, that I like that. I really liked that it was something that I wasn't just like, oh, it's just like the thing, this other thing. Yeah. By the way, it is Dr. Quadpod. Just checked on IMDb. <laughs> but he's a, he's a puppeteer. He appears in a lot of uh, a lot of shows. He's also in The Eye? I don't know. It's the same show. We just watched, yeah. right? He was in episode uh, The Rise of the Skywalker. <laughs> yeah. Jonathan's favorite Star Wars. And he's also, he also played a character called Two Tubes in Rogue One, so who knew? Yeah. Hard-working dude, I guess. Keep busy. It's true. Does he get four times? I, I think in the, the fine tradition of Star Wars, who in the past have named a character with three eyes, who just called him like four arms. Well, they did quad paw. Yeah. Mm, or the paw. Yeah. There you go. Uh, I had a couple of good quotes. That same spot you were talking about, Jaime, where uh, Nemec is talking to Cass and he's sort of saying, you know, Nemec is talking about how he's feeling and he's. He's kind of tired and he's not sure how he feels. And, and Cass says, don't worry, the excitement will kick in. I feel like that was for the audience because last episode yeah. we talked about was really action free. It was really, you know, a build up. I feel like that one was for the fact, just hold on to your socks. This is going to get good. And then at the end where, uh, you know, Skeen says, luck, it drives the whole damn galaxy, doesn't it? I thought that was a pretty good as a callback to the Han Solo concept. Yeah. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. It's interesting that we're only halfway. This is a twelve episode series, right? It is. It's interesting that we're halfway through this because um, it feels like you know that that could be a a cliffhanger ending for a season one, right? A, a short mini series of like, oh yeah, dude got away. Yeah. 
watch next season to see how does he, you know, not just go live off his life. How does he become further entrenched in the rebellion? We see uh, Luthen, uh, you know, happily surprised that the, the whole attack went off correctly. You know, that it's big news that people are talking about it in his shop. Yeah. Doesn't it seem strange? Wouldn't you think if this is a totalitarian regime, especially on Coruscant, so maybe somewhere further out in the Nimura Rim, obviously there's other, you know, there could be other ways of getting information. But wouldn't you think that one of the things that Palpatine, if he's ruling an empire, would have done is control the media? Maybe he's Nate really Mark Zuckerberg in a, in a cape. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe. But that was that was just for my, again, maybe it's just my, my previous existence, but I just found myself thinking, if you're going to have a totalitarian regime, the first thing you do is take over media yeah, and kill everybody yeah. who, who talks bad about you. So they're, you know, when they're like, oh, there's this, incident on this planet and no you should have you know you should read about it here in the the hollow news i was thinking there's no way that the imperials let people know about that because it gives people hope like wouldn't that be the first thing you'd shut down and be like oh no no don't talk about that i guess it depends on what their strategy is because there is a potential strategy here of and this monstrous attack is why we've instituted these new rules it's why we've locked down even further for harmony. Um, well, I could see the the imperial security team, the, the the guys in white. I mean, they're they're going to kick into action for damage control, right? But yeah, I, I could see your point, Jonathan. They they probably would shut the media down. Like the 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 general public wouldn't hear about this, right? Yeah, because again, it's anything that destabilizes a, ty- a tyrannical government is bad, right? You wouldn't want your opposing forces to to have any news that they would consider positive. You don't want them claiming any kinds of victory. You want that silence. So, you wouldn't want, wouldn't want to, to admit that your, your maple syrup reserves have been broken into, right? That's a different right, matter. That's, that's a cross-reference from another show that Jaime and I are on. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah well, I read that story online. Um, yeah, and it's, it's interesting that specifically the, the uh, Imperial officers in that security building that we've, we sort of touched back and forth on when the, the main Imperial is sort of saying, you know, hey, tuck in kids, we're all going to be here all night. He doesn't say, like, we're going to discuss, you know, our security. He says, we're going to talk about retaliation. That's the word he uses is retaliation. So I'm curious. So the it was probably lost on a lot of people. You kind of have to be in the weeds. But when Mon Mothma is giving her speech, when the news breaks in the Senate, she's talking about this one race of people and how they're being oppressed and they just want their basic rights and they're being treated badly we know how that plays out for those people there is a massacre on that planet the imperials go in and and kill a lot of them i wonder if that's the response to this is them putting their foot down on the necks of one group of people to punish another oh is it the the planet where the where the eye is that they're going to go by what no planet? no it's it, she's she's talking about this one planet where you know they're fighting i can't, I can't remember off the top of my head i meant to write it down i didn't that she's talking about this one planet where the people are, are demanding their rights and she wants to send a fact-finding mission to try and clarify that these people you know aren't what they're being portrayed as that they're actually innocent and they're just they just want to stand up for their rights but again we know through the history of the the expanded universe that this planet 
does fall under the boot of the empire in the not distant future. It's part of the rebellion. So I wonder if that gets brought into this. We talked about how they mentioned Kessel in the previous episode. We're seeing the, the, the sparks of the, of the rebellion happening in a bunch of different places. And what we're going to see in response to that is the empire trying to slip those out with their boot heels. And in some cases it, it works. Like they, they do mercilessly dispatch a lot of innocent people during this stretch. So that bit of insight into the canon and the lore is going to make my current statement a little bit more awkward, but I'm weirdly rooting for the Imperial security folks. <laughs> like, like I know, like, like I'm just really clear to those of you uh, transporting home. I know they're the bad guys. I know they're the empire, but this show has done a good enough job of, of humanizing them. I, you know, granted, I didn't know that they were going to, you know, go commit some genocide here, but like, they're lar- we talked about the office politics part, right? That they're just like, you see that angle of them of just like working their jobs. It's just like this normal job, this oh crap moment has happened to them and they are reacting to it in a way that seems fairly real. And I'm, I'm, I'm rooting for them in a, like, I know they're going to lose and I know they're the bad guys. I'm, I'm rooting for them in the way you would root for like a good villain. And I feel like that's a good, um, a good bit of writing and portrayal that they're, they're not just like boo hiss, uh, you know, kind of caricatures. Oh, I just, yeah. I mean, we, we talked about it through a lot of the, the genre TV that we talked about. What makes the best hero stories is the best villains. I think if you can create complex villains like we had with, you know, for just to pull one out of the air, Thanos, I think there's a real value to that in making sure that you get, you know, characters that are, you know, the the meme that was going around inside the MCU and outside the MCU, Thanos was right, right? There are people who would look at this and be like, well, what's wrong with the Empire, you know? strip mining planets if it's for the greater good and you know there, there are people that think that way uh i didn't realize i was one of them but you know that's a different matter uh <laughs> yeah but also dear dear has got to get her like she was right about the her prediction yep. that this random these random events weren't really random and and now hopefully it's going to bubble up to her her superior that um, she in fact was calling it right, even though she was shot down. But she was shot down by the the guy that the that was shooting her down was the the conspirator, right? He was the guy that that went to the planet and helped them with the robbery, right? No, no, that was a different fellow. Different no, guy. he's the okay. one that goes back to Cass's old planet and is like, "We're in charge here now." That's that's a different, oh, okay, different yeah, guy, right. yeah, yeah. And also, we have to have our um our our Boimler character. Um, what's um what's his name again? Oh, Karn. Uh, Karn, yeah, he needs he needs to sort of have some some sort of redemption too, or is he just going to suffer his mother's wrath for the next thirty years? Yeah, I'm glad that they didn't break too far away in this episode to the machinations on Coruscant or him or anything else. So I'm glad that they sort of stayed focused on the heist because tension had been built up so well. I- I'm glad that we didn't have to get into that, but you're right. I think it has to circle back around with all the things coming together. And coming to a head eventually, even if it's, you know, the next couple of arcs as we build towards the end of the season and, and look ahead to the next one. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to it's see. Great TV next... though. The man that yeah. they're killing it. This is this is I, I said to someone the other day, they were saying, uh asking me, Well, what are you watching? Like, what's this well, what are your recommendations? And I said, Andor is the best, uh, best non-Star Wars Star Wars stories I think I've ever seen. Like it's it's so grounded and 
visceral in a way that Star Wars has kind of lost sight of in a lot of ways. Like, and I, and I, and I say that to include things like Book of Boba Fett. This is just such a small story, but yet such a personal and, and, and yet universe expanding story. It's, it's, it's just really, really compelling television. And it happens to be set in the Star Wars universe. Yeah, that's true. Well, speaking of amazing television. Oh, yeah. Talk about House of Dragon, Lord of the Tides. Yes. My, uh, my elevator pitch, a new challenge to the legitimacy of Rhaenyra's sons brings all the king's family home for a fancy feast and a final farewell. Ooh. That's a good one. This I, I went with uh, the more cheeky bloodlines and where to find them, sort of the, the overall theme here, because <laughs> they, they talk a lot in the, the you know, remember last time uh, segment was like, hey, remember how uh, Corliss Valerian said, history doesn't remember blood, it remembers names. So that felt like it was mm. quite appropriate for this episode where there is that question of the bloodlines. Yeah, yeah. So the, the, I guess the deeper elevator pitch for this one is Corliss is injured in battle. It's six years later than where we left the previous episode. Corliss is injured in battle and the idea of him dying and leaving the Driftmark throne to, this would be Lucerus, Luke, the second child of theoretically Rhaenyra and Leonor, who everyone believes is dead, uh, is, is sort of set up to happen, and Corlys's brother, uh, Vimund, comes and sort of says, e like, this clearly not black child is not our bloodline. We have existed since before, there, you know, like since old Valyria. We cannot have this little, little Caucasian kid sitting on our throne and representing the history of our house. He's clearly not part of the family. And so this is, of course, Something that the High Tower is waiting for ha to have happen because they want, of course, their, their bloodline to to sit on the throne at King's Landing, and they also want them to have all these seats of power. And for them, if they got Vaymont on that throne as opposed to Lucerus, it's a win for them because it puts them in more positions of power and it legitimizes their hold on the throne. So it leads to everybody in their donkey ending up in King's Landing once again, six years later. And uh, man, the fireworks from there are amazing. Yeah. And Viserys is pretty, pretty beat up. I mean, he's even worse off than we saw last, last week with, you know, having, we see later on lost an eye and, and, you know, wearing, wearing a, a bandage over his head for half of the thing. And Phantom of King's Landing? Later. Yeah. Phantom of King's Landing with a nice gold mask and all that kind of stuff. And, yeah, but the, I mean the best the best pew pew has got to be the the uh, the part where you know, I mean he he stumbles into the into the uh, the courtroom and there's this big or the you know I guess throne room and there's this, this big long really drawn out march to the throne, um, and then uh, you know when the when the the brother challenges the uh, legitimacy and says the b word, um, you know he says I'll have your tongue and he. Stands up with his knife in his hand, and next thing you know, oh, da Damon and Black uh, Dark Sister, the sword, the, the Valyrian sword. That, they set that up so beautifully in the previous episode because when uh, when Alicent slashes Rhaenyra's arm, and Rhaenyra is getting her arm sewn up, the Maester says, 
you know, you're going to have a scar, but luckily Valerian steel cuts clean. And then to do that the following week where one slice from Dark right, Sister, yeah. this dude's face falls off. Like, oh my God. That was... Yeah. I feel like it says a lot that no, it's good and you all appreciated. These were my two ones. So the, my best pew 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 was King Viserys and his walk of pride, yeah. which I thought was really well done. And my they said what quote was Damon saying he yeah. can keep oh, his yeah. tongue because there's just like a, yeah, a, a bottom half yeah. of a jaw. Freeze frame for a second. As he's falling, his tongue is flapping out of the bottom half of his body. It's horrifying. It's horrifying. Yeah, no, nice. that was, uh, nice. you're, you're right, Jaime, that, that scene where Viserys, who we, we established earlier on, so when Damon and Rhaenyra show up, they go back up to his chambers, he's in bed, he's in terrible shit, he's clearly, uh, they, you know, they figure out that he's also booked up, he's on the and they introduce him to his namesake, they're, they're two of their, you know, and they've got a third child on the way, um, but we see him in really, really, really bad shape. And, and again, it's been a, an awful descent for him over the course of these episodes. But we know that he's, he's on, the, on the precipice of going. And, you know, Rhaenyra comes to him later in the day and sort of says, you know, I need you. You have to help, you have to help me. And he, apparently that stinks through this haze. And so he pulls himself out of bed and he shows up. And, and it's just, it's, the, it's that, you know, it's like a Perry Mason moment, right? Where you've got Otto Hightower sitting on the throne. Uh, you know, Princess Rena, um, who is uh, Corliss's wife, shows up and she says to Rhaenyra, like, the Hightowers are about to strike their first blow. You're not going to win here. You're in, you're in deep trouble here. And then Otto's on the throne and it looked like no matter how good they face that he's going to rule in favor of, of screwing around with their legacy and, and how things are supposed to go according to Viserys' wishes. And then Viserys, you know, the music comes up and he does that long walk. Oh man, if Patty Constantine doesn't win a, an Emmy award for this performance, like he's been great throughout, but this was uh, like through the roof. Good. That scene alone. And then the, the, the feast scene that comes after it, this guy was amazing in this show, Patty Constantine. Um, but yeah, to, to have him come and like, I'm going to sit on the throne today. And when he gets there and he leans forward and his, his crown falls off and then he goes to try and reach for it. And it, Damon of all people picks it up and puts it back on his head. Like, Oh my God, what a moment, like such good, like emotional evocative TV. So good. And yeah. And then he's like, listen, we talked about this before. I told you what I wanted. This is what's happening. It's over with so a big blow to the high towers. And, you know, just, yeah. And then of course, anything with Damon getting his head chopped off and, Oh, what, what amazing scene. Like everything about that was so good. And then that leads to them. They're all going to dine together. Everybody like, let's bury the hatchet. Let's have a meal together. And it looks like it's kind of almost working a little bit, right? Like Rhaenyra, you know, he gives his speech where he's like, listen, I'm about to die. You know, I, all I've ever wanted is for all of us to get along and be a family. The legacy matters to me. Can you please once and for all I'll bury the hatchet? And Rhaenyra once again stands up and this time from a position of strength, not weakness and says, you know, it makes a nice compliment to, to Allison and sort of says, you know, hey, we're here, like, let's bury the hatchet. And it seems like it's turning until <laughs> we end up with, uh, you know, this, this very sort of interesting scene where 
uh, just as as Viserys takes his leave, the the uh, serving people come in with this roast pig and they drop it on the table right in front of Aemond. And of course, Aemond was embarrassed in a couple episodes back when he was still a small child and they brought the pig out of the dragon pit and said, you know, it's the pink dread. And of course, Luke, Luceris notices this from across the table and smiles. And that's what prompts uh, Aemon to make this nasty speech where he talks about how much he loves his strong nephews, of course, emphasizing the strong so that they know that he's essentially calling them uh, bastards Mm. once again. And... You know, and then it's it nearly comes to blows again. Uh, you know, Jaceris uh, uh, stands up and and uh, has a dance with his aunt, who is married to his uncle, and that makes the uncle mad. And he's making all kinds of inappropriate comments about you know having sex with their cousins to whom they are now betrothed. This whole show is really yeah. messed up sometimes, <laughs> and. Uh, yeah, it seems like it's going to come to blows. And so basically they, they clear the room, but there's this sort of hopeful moment at the end where Rhaenyra and, and Alicent sort of lock eyes and she says, you know, I have to take the kids home, but I'll come back on Dragon Back and, you know, we'll sort of continue this conversation about trying to find a, a nice path forward. And of course that leads to this, this misunderstanding, which will inevitably lead to war. So yeah, my my question and and Tim, you had sort of said, well, you know, let's let's sort of look forward from here. We've got two episodes left this season. It looks an awful lot like now that you know Viserys once he dies at the end of this episode, that's going to be the trigger point, right? That's there's gasoline everywhere. The match is Viserys dying, and now Alicent is thinks that she's justified in disobeying his statements in the throne room about wanting Rhaenyra to take the throne because she now thinks that his last wish was for Aegon to take the throne. Hmm. And so he's going to want, she's going to want Aegon. The Hightower is going to back that. Of course, Rhaenyra is supposed to take the throne and that would put Jace in line for the throne next. And so this is all going to just turn into a major disaster over the next couple episodes. And uh, if I'm led to understand by reading a few different articles online, I believe the next two to three seasons of the show are going to be focused on the Dance of Dragons, which is the war, the Civil War. So this, all of this season has pretty much been the preamble to what is going to be a long and extremely bloody war. Um, what are you guys thinking about what, what you well, want to see and what we might see in the last couple episodes? Yeah, I never know what I'm going to see in this, in this J.R. Martin, Martin um, world, but, or George Martin world, but uh, Jaime and I were talking before you joined us um, this, this evening about the titles of the next two episodes are very sort of spoilerific, right? Uh, the next next episode is mm. called The Green Council, which we know will be Alicent's, you know, um, sort of turn. Um, and then the the 10th episode is called The Black Queen. So we know we kind of can figure out what happened to Viserys in the next two episodes, right? Um so and and obviously the 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 term the black queen doesn't sound very particularly good, right? So I mean, from that point of view, so it's it definitely the two women are going to be taking over or taking over their 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 places. You know, their places are going to be set, right? Um, but yeah, I think I mean it's clear that the the family is going to fall apart as soon as Viserys takes away is away, and and you know Otto kind of called it 
you know, three episodes ago when he said, you know, no one's going to, I mean, a large majority of people are not going to back uh, Rhaenyra's claim, right, to the throne. Well, and especially if the the re- Queen Regent is the one leading the way, like it's it's going to get, yeah, it's going to get really ma- well, messy you know, very and, fast, and right? The, the, you know, who has the bigger dragon and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, but it's interesting. So, so the mm. the younger son, Rhaenyra's younger son, who who in theory is Lenor's son, right? That's why he would get Driftmark because the other one's already going to get. He's already in line to to get the throne, right after Rhaenyra. Yeah, that's right. So his second son, he would become Lord of Lord Driftmark. of uh, of yeah. Driftmark. Yeah. Um, it's worth mentioning. You mentioned the Black Queen. So the two sides of this impending civil war will henceforth be known as Team Green and Team right. Black. Black for the Targaryen flags. And green, of course, for the high towers. So when they say the Black Queen, that could definitely be an allusion to Rhaenyra, because she would be the queen of the black side. Yeah. So I mean, that, that, so that's that's kind of let the cat out of the bag in terms of if you, if you go and read those two titles for the shows, right? So you know, it's funny because obviously this is another George R. R. Martin piece of work that is based on a previously written work. Thankfully, it's a completed one, but. There is obviously a text that you can get information from that exists, although it's not nearly as fleshed out as the show. But it really doesn't matter, does it? Like, seeing it, experiencing it, the nuance, the performances, the quality of the production, like, they really, they hit these shows out of the park. They really do. They, you know, I wasn't loving some of the time jumpy stuff this season because, you know, it's hard to feel connected to these characters when they're changing so much and we're jumping from place to place and time to time. I I did have some quibbles with that, and I know that I'm not alone in in that feeling. But it's just such high-quality programming. The the, the performances are so good. The the costumes, the settings, the... All of it is just so well done that it's... You just still get sucked in. I I honestly didn't think I was going to get sucked into the show as much as I have. I really didn't think... Especially after I think a lot of us sort of had a bit of a sour taste for the last season of Game of Thrones. They they made some choices that, that not everybody loved. I, I really didn't know if I was going to fall for it again, but I have, yeah, man. It's, it's, it's so probably, good. It's one of the good shows out there. Mm-hmm. I have a question, though. So so the character played by Sonia Mizuno, uh, Misira, Misiria, which is the mm-hmm. ex, yep. you know, of Damon's, right? She was in yep. this episode yep. for a bit, too. What do you think that's about? Or do you know? Um, so I, th- I think obviously she was basically getting her information in this episode from the woman who works inside of the Red Keep for Alicent. So she was there. So that's one of one of the little subplots that we didn't really talk about. So there's definitely reasons to be empathetic to both sides of this, Team Green and Team Black. But they've done a much better job of you know putting less on team black you know so the 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 awful thing that theoretically team black did was uh Rhaenyra had a sex life like you know it's it's so much more pale compared to what we saw in this episode which is that we knew that um that Aegon was a brat in from previous episodes here we learn he's a rapist you know he clearly sexually assaulted this this young woman who we meet in this episode, and Alicent, the queen of hypocrisy, who was like, oh, I can't believe Rhaenyra would act this way, and oh, she had to drink moon tea so she didn't get pregnant, Mm -hmm. oh my god. 
basically forces this young woman to like drink the same tea to avoid the scandal of possibly, you know, carrying a bastard child of her son. And to her credit, she goes downstairs and, and you know, slaps him and says, you are no son of mine. And I can't believe you acted like this. Now, this is the same person who, you know, this this next episode is going to try and she's going to try and put him on the throne. But he's a, he's a monster. He's a monstrous person. And, and we know that, you know, he's a rapist and his brother is a thief because he stole that dragon during the funeral. They really are extremely unlikable. Yeah. Yeah, it was... Uh actually slightly confused as to whether it was the sort of abortive tea or if it was like a poison because they don't really show what happens at that point. And later on, they're yeah. like, Hey, where's that lady? And I'm like, Oh wait, yeah. Where is that lady? Is she like puking her guts yeah. out on like a toilet somewhere? Or is she like dead? Cause they made it a little ambiguous here for me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think we're supposed to get that. It's, it's the same moon tea, which is the tea that they it's, it came up in game of Thrones. It's come up in here before, but the idea is that it's abortive tea, right? It, it forces you to to miscarry if you if you are pregnant. Um, to answer your question, I guess in a roundabout way, Tim, I guess what I'm saying is is that that woman was pre- uh, present when this was happening. She then goes to this woman who who is basically the master of whispers, right? She's the one who knows things and and peddles in information. So she's clearly bringing the information. Hey, Aegon raped somebody else. Here's what's going on inside the castle and sharing that information. What I guess the question, the larger question is, is how, what happens with that information now? Where does it go from here? How is it weaponized? You know, is it, oh, Aegon's done this before. He has a series of, you know, uh, you know, bastard children, or he has, uh, you know, a series of, of, you know, rape offenses that have been covered up by this queen who, in this episode, we really see, there's a, a great line from Damon where he's like, you know, uh, what's with all the religious you know you basically wiped out all the heraldry of the targaryens and replaced it all with this pious uh, seven-pointed star all the symbols of of religion and faith she's basically you know turned what was a kind of hedonistic place into a a much more puritanical space which again is part of the whole you know push pull of the blacks versus the greens but uh yeah i, I wonder if this is going to be used later on to 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 talk about the queen uh, that is alicent uh, her hypocrisy or Aegon's crimes or how that's going to come back around. It, it must, there must be something more there, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm really enjoying Andor and, you know, we'll, we'll talk about Lord of the Rings in, in a minute, but this is the best TV show on TV. It is. It just is. It's so good. I am with all the team black, team green stuff. I'm a little shocked that there's not like, I don't know, a Taco Bell or Burger King combo that you can buy <laughs> that uh, that signifies your your allegiance just like uh people have said it's very similar to team edward team jacob for um uh the twilight series so it's not that not that dissimilar there's a lot of similarities here people choosing sides what color sauce do you want on your taco <laughs> i'm team green and it's 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 a weird thing too because by the time you get to the end of this episode they've they've done enough to make you feel if not supportive, then at least empathetic to Alicent. You know, yes, she's made some horrible choices. No, she's not thoroughly likable. But she's kind of, you know, she was a, a pawn for her father in this larger game. And she's kind of trying to make the best of it. She is obviously very disappointed in the way that her sons act. And, you know, she does aspire to goodness and, and trying to be a better person. 
so they've made it complex, but the idea that in the end, what what's going to be the spark, obviously, is not just Viserys' death, but this misunderstanding of the prophecy, the idea that she thinks she's doing what mattered most to her husband, carrying out his final wishes, especially right on the heel of that happening in the throne room, right? That's what, that's what um, Reyna comes up and says, is, as far as I know, my husband, who's on his deathbed, wanted you know, Lucerys to be the new king of the tides or, you know, Lord of the tides. It's just, it's heartbreaking in its way, right? It really is like, so these, these families are going to destroy each other. They're going to destroy their legacy. They're going to, they're going to tear these buildings down to their foundations over what works out to be an old man on his deathbed saying the wrong thing to the wrong person at the wrong time. It's just, it's, it's awful. It's really awful. Good show. Couple episodes left, right? 10 in the season. We'll see. Mm-hmm. See where they leave us. They, they've given us a, a whole bunch here. Yeah, and it's all a surprise. Yeah, I wonder if we're going to, you know, the one thing I have been noticing is, especially over the last few episodes, the the, uh, the cast count is getting very high. There's a lot of kids, cousins, yada, yada, yada. Like, there's a lot of players, and their names are all really alike, which is annoying. But uh, I wonder if one of these episodes, whether it's the next one or the final one, we'll, we'll see some some players taken off the board if it, if the stakes go mm. up if it you know if it, if it does actually start to be more of a war and less of a cold war which is what it's been right yeah well we'll have to wait and see in the meantime mm. we can talk about the season finale of rings of power season finale mm. well yeah two episodes i guess to cover Qu- quickly we didn't we didn't really talk about uh, the last but one episode which was the sort of fallout of the mount doom going off that one was, again, a lot of table setting, right? It was basically like, you know, everybody going off in their different directions. But, but it sets up this big finale, which um, we finally get some clarity. That's really what the bottom line on this one was. True identities are finally revealed in an epic season one finale. Mm-hmm. So we have Lord of Tides, and then we have... No, sorry, is that right? Yeah, Lord of Tides, and then the Eye. What are your pitches for that? Uh, no, this, it was, uh, it was oh, the Eye was the second last one. The final one is, is Alloyed. Which is funny because obviously it's a play on on allied and alloyed. Alloyed. All right. So, what's your pitches for episode seven? It was uh, everyone deals with the aftermath of the volcano during an Elrond play Minecraft and before door no more. Remind. <laughs> and and this uh, episode eight no pitch was uh, very straightforward. Gandalf and Sauron revealed in the season finale. Although there are people who will disagree with those. Oh, there you go. Um. Oh, I I'll, I I got yeah, some rebuttals for yeah. those ones. So, uh, sticking with episode seven, just to to give it briefly, uh, I didn't really have anything in Easter egg hunt. Um, the the pew 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 was really more around the the burning horse and ruins that were um like pretty Oof, pretty striking. Yeah. Um, my quote from that episode was uh, the Harfoots talking about the trees and stuff and it's like trees don't talk it's like well some do it's like oh that's a practically an easter egg right there as a hint toward the ents as a a rumor of a whisper that like there are some trees that talk yeah that's what i actually had as my easter egg for that episode was was that that exact quote because yeah obviously talking about the ants which you know anybody who's seen those movies knows about or 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 haven't been read the books uh my my big question from that Hmm? episode seven was when exactly did the dwarves dig too greedily and too deep? Because right now, they dug enough to at least mildly annoy the Balrog 
with that leaf that fell all the way down. It's like, did he just go snooze for a little bit more? It's like, yeah, whatever, you know, just go back to sleep. Like, when when do they uh, they cause their doom there? Because uh, that was an interesting sort of, uh, you know, reveal there for, for longtime fans of Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I'll be curious to see how much, you know, they are condensing storylines or condensing timelines on some of this stuff because they have to, obviously. It just doesn't be, it doesn't do anybody good to be like, well, all these humans that were in the first uh, couple episodes, they're all dead now because the elves lived like thousands of years. So they're condensing some of this stuff, which is logical. But I wonder how much of those kind of seminal important parts we will get over the course of these, this series. Yeah. Yeah. Was there other stuff that, Either of you picked up from uh, episode seven before we would move on to to eight. Yeah, the only other one that I just my big question from this one was the, you know, these three women who have just been, you know, scaring the pants off of the Harfoots and everything. Who are they? What do they want? Now, obviously, by the time we get to episode eight, we we do find out who they are and what they want. But at that point, that was really the question was, you know, who are these people? They're clearly not not there for good reasons if they're they're burning down the the harfoots camp but uh yeah that was that was the big what the out of that for me was what exactly is it that they're doing other than torturing uh little people well we do sort of find out in the next episode though right yes we do we do so yeah the the episode eight was really um it was good although they tried you know i mean we we obviously we had a little sort of mid-season we had a good discussion about you know, the the candidates, the Sauron mm-hmm. candidates, right? Like they were trying to sort of put a few people forward. They were trying to put forward Adar. They were trying to put forward the stranger who's with the Harfoots. And they were trying to put forward some hints that it was also Halbrand. And there was reasons why you could think it was mm-hmm. any of them. Uh, the, you know, the stranger obviously kept losing control and, and calling on these, these very powerful forces and putting the Harfoots in danger uh adar of course this you know menacing presence threatening the southlanders and and you know trying to bring about the creation of of mordor so again big big candidate there but they kept dropping all these hints through the season about uh halbrand but you know he talks he he dropped a couple of lines that were red flags about you know power over flesh and and uh you know a few different sort of cryptic comments that sort of raised the flag and you know and the the bottom line was that they introduced very early in the concept that he's a smith and that he has this expertise in in that he's sort of woven into the season and also we've seen him fight and he's he was kind of a monster when he he got into that fight he was like smashing people's faces into the Mm -hmm. wall and stuff like he's he's not a he's not a, a a rogue he's kind of a killer so they definitely set the stage for, well, it could go all these different ways. At the, by the time we get through episode seven, we can pretty much take Adar off the board because he clearly is a dark elf. And we know that Sauron isn't a dark elf, that, he's, that he was a man. And we also know that, you know, Adar has essentially done what he said he wanted to do, which is to create this homeland for the, for the Uruk. So in this one, it really comes down to is it the stranger? Who is the stranger and who is Halbrand? And so that's sort of the thread we follow with this whole episode is, you know, all these little sort of, oh, is it this? Is it that? As it goes back and forth. And, and um, yeah, and we finally get the truth. And, and the truth is, and if you haven't watched this, I don't know why you're listening to this podcast right now, but 
you know, we we over the course of the episode, we get the sort of uh, <laughs> I wrote down in my notes. You'll see them on the sh- on the on our notes in here, but. It, you know, they start in the Greenwood, the, the stranger is there, and then he loses his apple, and he thinks he sees Nori, and he chases her, and it turns out that it's one of the three uh, women that have been sort of following them, and they all sort of bow and say, oh, we're here to serve you, Lord Sauron, and I wrote in brackets, there's just no way, like, it's just, there's no way that this guy is, is Sauron, yeah. after all these hints mm. and tips. And as we go through the episode, uh, Galadriel and Halbrand go to see the elves in Eregion. And of course, that's where Celebrimbor is. That's where Elrond is. That's where the king is, Gilgalad. And they go there and they, um, you know, uh, coincidentally, Halbrand's got a great possible solution for how they can, you know, use the mithril and, and everything else. And and of course, in doing this and suddenly being like, you know, going from like on his deathbed to like, I'm fine. And let's talk about how we can change, you know, have power over flesh again. They build up this suspicion in Galadriel, which, of course, pays off with the two of them finally having this sort of conflict down by the river and in which he reveals the fact that he is Sauron. And um, yeah, and it, it, but then, you know, it's it's so it's so weirdly done, too, because, of course, you know, Galadriel's like checking up on him and then she figures out that it's him. And he, they have this sort of like, you know, psych battle inside of her head. And then she comes back around and basically like says, you know, it's, where's Halbron? They're like, well, he's gone. And she's like, okay, well, don't let that guy back in here. But doesn't say, yeah, that, that was Sauron. Maybe like somebody grab a sword and let's go find that guy. Yeah, it's not until Halbron discovers the parchment that she's reading um, to show yeah, that, that there is yeah. no king of the Southlands, right? But the other thing, too, is I kind of always thought the the stranger was probably Gandalf because um I remember Gandalf talking about how he kind of he always did like a Doctor Who thing where he would um what do you call it he would regenerate into like he starts off as a, he's Gandalf the Grey in the Hobbit mm-hmm. and and Lord of the Rings and then he becomes Gandalf the White right um but, well but that's also because Saruman becomes Grey because he is dabbling in the dark magic right. too but right? also yeah um. Is it Saruman? The, the, is, who's the one that Christopher Lee plays? That's yeah, Saruman, yeah. Be, or it could have been him. It could have been that character. But it's like, it, it definitely a, a wizard. And the fact that he's got powers and, you know, because he, can, he yep. can, you know, burn the forest and he dispatches the spoilers, dispatches the three ladies, right? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Turns them into butterflies, which yeah, will make Nathika it... really happy, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, and that's I had that for my best pew 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 was when you know the the character that we're going to call Gandalf, and I'll I'll make my case for him really being Gandalf in a second. But that that fight between him and the trio with some help from the Harfoots uh, was was a great scene where you know again he's starting to figure it out. I love how he just like suddenly mastered English too. Yeah. That was really mm-hmm. impressive. But um, that scene was really good and sort of plays out and, and of course has the sort of, you know, quote where, you know, they're talking about, you know, uh, yeah, only you can show who you are. You choose by what you do. And he says, I am good. And of course, that's the clincher that he is not Sauron, right? Um, but the case for this really being Gandalf comes at the end of the episode where when Nori makes the decision that she's going to accompany this, the stranger, as we're still calling him, uh, on his adventure, doesn't want to leave him alone. She leaves the Harfoot clan and decides to go off with him. He says, you know, she says, where are we going? And he says, I honestly don't know. And then he turns around and he takes a sniff and he says, 
oh, it's that way. And she says, how do you know? And she, he says, if in doubt, you always follow your nose. That's exactly what Gandalf says in the Mines right. of Moria. To the word. That's the same thing he says. So it's Gandalf. Yeah, that was, yeah. Uh, that was an interesting sequence where um, we have to remember that these shows have to appeal to more than just people who are really into Lord of the Rings. And so, um, mm-hmm. you know, which dude is Sauron, which, you know, who are these other guys? I can see where it's not meant to fool people who are like really deeply into the lore. And I think we were pretty spot on. Like this dude's probably Gandalf. Um, this dude over here is probably Sauron. But that would probably be pretty actually shocking for sort of more casual viewers. I don't really have a, a problem with that. I, I did for a moment think they might go the route of maybe it's like splitting up uh, of Sauron, that like part of it is the body and part of it is kind of like the soul mm. because they show, they show Sauron is like, Ooh, he's like considerably that. bigger and, and the stranger is considerably bigger. Even if you account for uh hobbit smallness, he still seems pretty large for a person. So, mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't go that way, but I, I did think mm-hmm. maybe they, they might. Get this man a writing job. That's that's good. I like that. That would have been really interesting. People were wondering on the internet, like, why doesn't Galadriel say something? I'm like, well, if you remember, they kind of thought she was sort of nuts at the very beginning of this series. So she yeah. was already like, oh, Sauron's here. And they're like, yeah, whatever, loser, just get on the boat and go enjoy your paradise. Get out of here. So... Uh, if she started saying like, hey, we should go stab this guy because he's 100% Sauron. I, I didn't know when I accidentally brought him here and we started making him do stuff. They would have thrown her in the loony bin for sure. Right. Uh, so I, I can I can understand where people might have some issues with the way it was handled. But like, I, I can see why she wouldn't immediately tell everybody that like this guy is is the one person I've been looking for this entire time. Yeah. Yeah. And uh it is interesting too because again they she she directly lifts some of the stuff from the book uh about you know when when she's having the sort of mental battle with with Sauron and you know he says together we can save middle earth and she says save or rule and then she sort of quotes that same line so in the scene where uh Frodo offers her the one ring in uh fellowship of the ring and she sort of says you know I would become a dark queen and I would, you know, I would rule you know, in my dark glory and stuff like that. That's the exact same line she uses here, too. And so, again, we get that call back to, you know, she also feels that temptation, that that power, that that sort of it's in her, too. Right. So I think you're right, Jaime. I think she's she's sort of covering herself, but also, you know, thinking like, I don't want to get thrown back into a boat and told to go jump in and if i tell everybody that i came all the way back and also i brought uh i brought like the nefarious monster that we've all been hunting back with me that she would instantly get spurned and she wouldn't be able to actually make things right yeah and she did fall into that area that i was wondering about of like oh uh did she cause the thing to happen that she was trying to to prevent from happening and and she did right had she just gotten on the boat and sipped some mai tais in paradise um, odds are pretty good. Sauron is still floating in the ocean, maybe eaten by the big, uh, big whale monster. Uh, and even if he can't die, uh, maybe he's just sitting at the bottom of the ocean, just doing nothing, but, but in the gut and like he's, uh, Jonah and the whale. Right. So, um, that, that sort of, that sort of fits, um, uh, for, 
for me, when I look at this series, I'm like, I feel like it could have been six episodes. There's some there's some pacing issues where I feel like the second half of the season was way better than the first. And there's good things in the first half, but it feels like they needed to to change the 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 timing, the pacing, or or even just trim some episodes because I was glad that the the Harfoot stuff actually went somewhere. Like it didn't go anywhere for a very long time. Um, and I am glad they, they made something useful out of it. Uh, I'm you know happy that they, they had some, some real change for some people there. I'm sorry to see Sadek die, but he didn't go out like a punk. He got stabbed and he still participated in the battle. So uh, I enjoyed that. Yep. Um, and we, we do have the, the rings, the, the eponymous rings of power, right? We got the first of them created there. So that's uh that's nice it's a strange thing though because they you know again i'm not a tolkienologist by any means i've read the books i enjoyed the books i've seen the movies of course uh i wouldn't consider myself an accolade like so many people know so much more about this stuff but it seemed like it came sideways too like theoretically sauron helps calabrimbor figure out how to use this small amount of mithril to create the three rings of power that are worn by the elves. But it's not like he created them, which is kind of how the lore has always been, that that Sauron creates the three rings for the elves, the seven rings for men, the five for the dwarf lords, and then one ring to rule them all. It just seems strange that really he kind of laid the formula for it, but Celebrimbor is the one who makes the rings. And they make the conscious decision, there can't be one, there can't be two, there must be three. So it, it's, I don't know, it, to me, it, it just seemed a little bit um, mildly incongruous with what we know about the lore. True. And they also, like, the other thing that, that kind of perturbed me was, this is a continuity thing, is they, she sacrifices the dagger to make three tiny rings. Where does the rest of the super mm-hmm. valuable gold and silver go? Uh, they make her a nice anklet. <laughs> a nice what? No, I don't know. A nice, a nice ankle yeah, bracelet. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I did. I was the the whole episode was very. I missed a bit. Like for for a series that has been very deliberate in not tipping its hand, this episode was a little bit overt in some of the dialogue. Again, I, I grabbed some quotes, but when early in the episode. Uh, Celebrimbor is saying, you know, a circular form would be ideal, allowing the mithril light to arc back upon itself in one unbroken round. I was like, oh, you mean like a ring? Like it just, it was, you know, like a very small crown. Well, that's it. They were talking about making a crown and, and, oh, a crown would be perfect. I'm like, oh, I wonder if it's going to be a ring in the end. Like some of that stuff was a little like, it's all kind of on the nose. Especially since it's called the rings of power, you know? Well, that's it, right? And again, it's based on a series called The Lord of the Rings. Like, gee, I wonder how this is going to play out. No, it was, uh, this one was satisfying in its way because it certainly was, there was a lot of, um, you know, a lot of buildup. I did occur to me, you know, I think we talked about it a little bit, um, but we didn't really, because we didn't talk about episode seven, because we're covering two at once here, but there's a weird intimation in last week's episode where they, they find Halbrand on the side of the road with a, a stab wound, but no one saw him in the battle and no one saw him get hurt. So did he stab himself? Yeah, to like ingratiate himself so he could get get the yeah. elf magic to get to yeah, to get yeah. to there. Yeah. Which again, I mean, Sauron's supposed to be like 
pure evil, so sure. But yeah, interesting. Or was it ketchup? <laughs> well, I mean, they, they do say it's a sour wound at one point, and, and you know, he, so he's apparently he's committed to the bit. He was like, I'm going to stab myself really good here, and, and, and then they'll have to take me to, to uh, Eregion so I can get healed and trick these guys into making me some rings. So Elrond at one point says he's half-elf. Did you mm-hmm. catch that? Yeah, we, he says that in a previous episode, too, when he's talking to the... When he's, he's begging to the um, dwarves to help save his, his people, he makes a point of saying, I'm only half. Right, right, right. Yeah, right. yeah he's Elrond half-elf. Cool. All right, should we move to our watch list now? Yeah. So what you got there, honey? Believe it or not, both of my Again, videos... Again, not appropriate for this show, but that's beside the point. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're pushing it, so there's a, there's a... there's a I'm not sure. It's at least PG, possibly PG-13 warning for both of these, even, uh, even the animated ones. So these are, uh, believe it or not, both Lord of the Rings ones. I'll start with a much more straightforward one, which is the ultimate Lord of the Rings... Fellowship of the Rings recap cartoon. It's done in a, um, I don't know, like a Fritz the Cat kind of vague style. It's very irreverent. It's very, um, you know, what is it? In two minutes and 50 seconds, can you recap, you know, a whole book or about three hours movie? And they do a pretty good job. Um, There is a lot of profane moments. So uh, use that as your your guidance. But I thought thought it was cute. I see that it came out in 2020. I'm like, very disappointed that I couldn't find anything for uh, the Two Towers or for uh, Return of the King. But but well done there. So if you're wondering where all of this is going eventually for Rings of Power, eventually it reaches to this point of the story. The other one that shocked me, uh, and I'm guessing the YouTube algorithm brought this up for me because it said, hey, you're watching a lot of Rings of Power, Lord of the Rings stuff, is a... I don't know if I want to spoil it or not. Uh, or if we want to describe it for for those of you who are too young to watch the video, what what do you gentlemen think having seen this video? It's only forty seconds. Oh, the, <laughs> the in the mood one? when she's in the mood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I'll do my best to describe it. <laughs> it's a raunchy episode. one where you know there's uh, two. I don't know teenagers, uh, college age people. I don't know what age they're supposed to be. You know, youngins, and uh, they're they're bored and and you know. Uh, idle hands or the devil's playground is what they say. She's, you know, like, hey, you know, why don't you, uh, why don't you get, uh, get your pants off there? And he's like, what? Yeah, go for it. And he's like, all right, sure. And he's like, what? It's glowing blue, but it only goes blue when there's orcs around. <laughs> there's a crazy yeah. turn <laughs> to villa. Meats on the menu, boys. <laughs> it's very, um, you know, it's very immature, immature, uh, for, at the same time, I I could not believe it. It was the weirdest uh, crossover that I'd never expected. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If if you're over the age of 18, enjoy. Right, right. So did you talk about the ultimate Lord of the Rings? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I thought it was going to be a little family friendlier, but I'm like, mm, no, this is more like uh, heavy metal or... Uh, it's it's sort of Ren and Stimpy is how I kind of read it. Like, it's almost like Ren and Ren Stimpy and Stimpy Fritz the Cat. It's, uh, it's not one that I would show the five-year-olds, that's for sure. It's got a little too much there. So what was interesting about that was the algorithm after I watched that one brought up the ultimate Star Wars, which is the same, like the, A New Hope told in the same style, right? You know, the, the Lord of the Rings one didn't kind of do the whole rings. It was almost like the Ralph Bacci, you know, first movie kind of mm-hmm. story, right? 
but the ultimate recap does the whole um right up to the, the medal ceremony and it's 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 just as funny it's kind of it's it's basically telling the story of of a new hope without you know all the sort of um ridiculous details in between right so and some of some of the you know the the family getting scorched and then later on um when the when the um and you see these the characters sort of um you know toasted and then and then when the millennium falcon takes off from tatooine the stormtroopers that are chasing are the same in the same depiction as the torched family right so it's pretty funny you know how to tell star star wars without telling star wars it's pretty cool what do you got for a pick john yeah, I uh, I wanted to check with you guys. Did you guys have a chance to watch Werewolf by Night? I did not. I was hoping that maybe you did and could give us the the heads up. Yeah, I uh, so I was sitting there the other night and I had some time and I was sitting there with our number one fan and and I thought, you know what? It's I as I as I mentioned previously in the show, I was not enthralled particularly with the idea of you know Marvel horror has never really been my thing. I'm not a horror buff. I certainly have a respect for it as a genre, but I, it's not my cup of tea. I wasn't sure what to expect from it, but I thought, you know what, I've got the time. It's, you know, 55 minutes and it's sort of treated as a as a special. Uh, but it is set in the MCU. This is an MCU story. And I thought, oh, well, let's see. Let's see where they go with this. And it's an interesting it was it was far more enjoyable than I think I was going in expecting. I, I didn't have high hopes. So obviously it's easy to clear that bar. But even that being said, it was enjoyable. The whole thing is done very much like a 1930s horror movie. It's in black and white. It is, uh, as Tim, you mentioned earlier when we're talking about the uh, lower decks, it's got the cigarette marks. It's got the grain. It, it looks like it's supposed to be set in the distant past, but it is set in now. And the, the big sort of, you know, elevator pitch for it is, a group of monster hunters get together to uh, enter a contest where the where they hope to gain the ultimate prize, and it's basically that's you know it's a self-contained little story about these these monster hunters trying to catch a monster, and if they catch this monster, they get this this ultimate prize. There is appearances by uh, not just the uh, the men you know the the title character werewolf by night, who of course has existed in the comic books for four decades, five decades. Uh, there is other, you know, Easter eggs and, and appearances and, and things for people who are fans of, of Marvel comics and Marvel horror, particularly. Um, it's, I wouldn't say it's horrific, but there's definitely some over-the-top violence, but it's all done in black and white, so it's not as gory as it certainly would have been if it was presented earnestly. And it is... Uh, it's kind of got, it's, I wouldn't say it's tongue in cheek. It's not like She-Hulk overtly funny, but there's certainly a little bit of a wink and a nod in some of it to, you know, just the absurdity sometimes of, of you know, the characters in horror movies and stuff like that. It is certainly worth a watch, uh, is, is the bottom line on it. It's certainly worth a watch for people who are enjoying Marvel content. You know, we joke all the time that, you know, they could turn a, a pile of, of, you know, cow droppings into gold. You know, this is not gold, but it shines pretty good. It shines pretty good. And, you know, I'll be really curious to see if any of the characters from this continue on. Obviously, they've introduced a character like Moon Knight that is more sort of supernatural, occultish. 
you know, there's talk that they're going, you know, obviously Blade is a character that we're going to get. There's talk about reviving Ghost Rider. There is this sort of darker, you know, black magic-y kind of side to the to the MCU that we haven't really gotten into. I'll be really curious to see if they build towards, you know, um, some of the more established, you know, crossovers, team-ups kind of stuff with some of these characters going forward. Because there's certainly, there's no shortage of it. And there are certainly lots of people who do like their horror. And it, especially if it's not over the top, you know, I mean, I have definitely friends who are horror aficionados, genuine, like, people who are way invested in it, who would scoff at, at this sort of type of horror. But there's, it's definitely, for a mass audience, it's, it's horror and good horror at that. So, yeah, I would say make the time. It's, it's less than an hour. It's well done. There's some good performances. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's, it's Marvel, and they do a good job. So this is a, this is a Marvel piece. I didn't realize that. I just thought it was yeah. It's for Halloween. It's set in the MCU. It features characters, long existing characters from from the Marvel comics, and um, and quite possibly ones we might see again someday. Cool. And I think for the kids, we should probably explain what the comment about the cigarette burns is. That um, back in the analog days, before before DVDs and Blu-rays and and even cassette techs and stuff, movies used to arrive at the film theater at the movie theater in in reels and you would depending on the length of the film you might have three or four reels to make up a full 90 minute or two hour long movie and how they would let the so the projectionist would load up the the film onto one projection camera and or projector and then they would put a second roll onto the second one so they would have reel number one and just as reel number one is running out there would be a cigarette burn, like literally burned into the film that would appear and it would let the projectionist know when to start the other camera or the other projector so that it was a seamless transition between the first reel and the second reel. And how they, one thing they would do at, at that time too was that the director would change the lighting between one um, so it wasn't jarring to the audience. Like they would go from like a, a, an indoor scene to an outdoor scene, for example, when a cigarette burn appeared. So that you wouldn't, so it would have sort of a continuity and you would never know that, or you wouldn't notice that the the film had changed reels or changed projectors, right? So it's kind of a trick that they used to do. And they used to, like, basically it was a way of marking the film so that, the, like I said, the projector, projectionist would know when to start the second projector. I, I just had to have the same conversation with our number one fan when we watched this this the other day. Yeah, just so. That's where we're here. We're, we're a public service podcast. You can also learn the same thing if you watch Fight Club. But yeah, but we can't talk. That's about true. It. We can't true. talk about that though. We can't talk about Fight Club, right? Uh, then the last thing I had on here, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, we'll obviously get into spoiler country. But uh, Tim and I, uh, along with uh, some of our family, went to go see the uh, Clerks. Was it Convenience Tour? Yeah, Convenience Tour. Yeah, where Kevin Smith was bringing out the uh, the new film Clerks Three this week and so they he comes out introduces the movie shows the movie and then does a Q&A afterwards where people can ask questions and and uh you know hear what he has to say about his new uh project it was uh I'm I'm still wrestling with how I feel about this movie I don't know Tim I, I'm I'll be really curious to hear what you think of it too but I'm I'm still struggling with trying to process my feelings about it it's it's certainly um it's not my favorite of Kevin's movies no. at all yeah there are certainly, you know, Kevin is a complicated person and his films are, you know, a reflection of that. He certainly has, you know, 
He wears his emotions on his sleeve. He has a lot of things that he wants to say. This movie is at times laugh out loud funny. And there are parts where you, if you were not careful, might find a tear coming to your eye. And I guess that's what, as you know, he sort of pointed out in the Q&A that, you know, he kind of has had a, a career that isn't exactly what he anticipated. He saw himself initially as being an auteur and wanting to do, you know, s- s- films, not movies. And then he made some choices along the way that sort of led him to doing things that were a little more mass populist, a little more, you know, broad. And with this movie, he wanted to try and go back to doing something that was, you know, poignant and had something to say. And and it does. And, and it's effective in that way. But I think that's why I'm still not sure how I feel about it, because it certainly raised a lot of complex feelings for me, which I guess as, as an artist, Tim, I mean, you, you can certainly share some perspective on this. That's what you're trying to do as an artist is to try and provoke feeling and you're trying to, to you know make those connections with your with your audience um but it, it was it was an unusual ride to go on and and, and i'm still thinking about it days later what uh, what did you think of it well I, I i sort of had those feelings during the actual watching of the film because there's parts of it that that admittedly are a bit slow right um mm-hmm. and and awkwardly slow right like um, there's, there's a definite message. I mean, it, it is a bit preachy in, in sort of halfway through or maybe a third of the way through, but, um, you know, I, I can get where he's, I get where he's coming from. And he did explain sort of the reasons behind that in, in the, uh, in the, the after show. Um, I found it very fan servicey, right? Like, like mm-hmm. if you're a huge Clerks fan and there's a lot of us who are, who are into the first movie. In fact, they even, they even asked before the film started, are you, you know, a Clarks one fan or you're a Clerks two fan? Cause some people came to never, never came to Clerks until the second movie. Um, and mm-hmm. then are you a Jay and Silent Bob fan kind of, um, thing. And, and, um, so, you know, and people sort of, and it's funny that the cheering of the crowd, it actually got louder during the, the, not the first movie, because the first movie is, the first movie is very, I mean, it's, it's very well written. It's, it's very well, like it's, the story's great, but it, it looks like a university student film, like from a quality point mm-hmm. of view, it's very, it's like almost 16 millimeter, I think. Right. Um, yep. so it, it is pretty low grade, you know, and crude in, in times. Right. And, um, so the, and the story kind of builds on the, the relationship of the, of the two uh, protagonists from the first movie, right? Um, they appear in, in the second movie as well. And, and they're kind of had this, you know, 40 long, 40 year long, is it 40 years, I think, right? Um, relationship. Well, 30, theoretically. 30, yeah. 30, 30 years from now. Yeah. And, and it's the just, they're sort of, they're sort of, they're bros. I mean, like, you know, they've, they've, they've worked together, you know, they've, they've had a very similar lives and, and. They they read it. They both have uh, sort of a midlife cri- midlife crisis, and of course, one of the crises is, is actually in the trailer. So, if you've seen the trailer, you know that one of the characters is going to have a life altering event happen, um, which will make him reconsider what what he's doing, and then and and then how they deal with that. And and it's this is also based on Kevin's life. I mean, the fact that he did have everybody knows he had, or most people know he had a heart attack, and he was saved by his doctor, and the type of um, heart attack he had was was a particularly dangerous one, and he was lucky to lucky to get out of it. Most people don't, right? I think he said it was like eighty twenty percent, right? Um, yeah. 
twenty percent survive. And twenty percent chance of, of survival. Yeah. yeah, and even in the after show, he said that he had a discussion with a doctor after he made this movie, and it was even less than that, right? Like the the percentage yeah. of people who survive. But, um, so I mean, you know, there, there's obviously there's some messages for people who are who are of the Randall and Dante's, um, or Randy and Don Dante. Um, yeah. their ages, right? And I mean, there's some hilarious bits in there. Like it's it's basically about making a movie. It's about and it, and it goes through the sort of like even the audition. I, I love the auditions. They, uh, there's a, a clip on Facebook you can see where they they show the audition scenes and they've got like Sarah Michelle Geller in there. They've got um, Melissa Benoist. They've got you know the, um, yeah Freddie Prinze, Ben Affleck, yeah Ben Affleck yeah. and and his buddy from the podcasts. Um, that's Mosier, yeah, Scott Mosier. Well, Scott Mosier, but also the other dude, the the one that we're. Oh, he, for, uh, they've got uh, Ralph Garman and yeah, yeah, the, the, everybody's the in one there. he says, all the Schwarzenegger, yeah, 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 and and they're all yeah, doing that. Yeah, Not even Ralph supposed Garman, to be yeah. here today, line right. Um, yeah, and the best one is uh, like uh, Bobby Moynihan uh, auditioning for Silent Bob, but uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, without giving away doing too much. It silently, yeah, which and yeah. it's it did he did marry marry Marion so-and-so do a porno too right wasn't that his didn't kevin smith do that one yeah mm-hmm. zach and mary, zach make, and mary porno, make a porno, yeah. porno yeah it's, it's sort of it's sort of like that scene there where they'd hit they the funny auditions and i mean so you know and it throws back to a lot of the the sort of things you like in clerks and and um and in clerks too right there's there's sort of tie-ins there too and so it's an entertaining movie but like you said i i, I don't know if i would put this up like clerks is a unique piece of a film it's a film like you know it's i i don't really think of it as a movie i think of it as an independent you know film yep clerks yeah. to mall rats is is very much a commercial piece you know chasing amy's chasing amy's probably his, arguably one of his better movies if not the best right yeah and i would say that's more of a film as well yeah that's more of a film that's very it yeah because it, it has some definite things and then jane's and bob are kind of they're kind of like uh vehicles for those those two characters in fact there was even a whole animated series on jay and silent bob right um you know and the so you know and and it's kind of like it's interesting the way that kind of works and he brings a lot of his friends back and he brings a lot of the original cast back it's it's almost like um you know the first star trek movie which you know suffered from the fact that you know it was just about bringing back the original cast right um there are, there are, I mean, bringing back the, the cast, for the, so the, those of them, it's dedicated to the two cast members who are no longer with us, right? But um, that was kind of interesting. I mean, you know, um, I don't know about you, but I don't find that the two characters, the two actors who play Dante and Randy, or Randall, <laughs> Randy, Randall are, are particularly the best actors, you know, like... Um, they play their characters well, but you know, I don't know if I've ever seen them in anything else, right? You know, have you? Uh, I've never seen them outside of a Kevin Smith movie. They played other parts in those movies yeah. as little like cameos and whatever. But yeah, yeah no, I, you're right. I, I don't think that they are. I think they get their characters quite well. I, and I think having heard them both be interviewed before, I think they're both very thoughtful people, and I think they invest a lot of themselves in these characters. So I think the characters show that, but. You're right. I, I wouldn't say that they are, by any means, the best actors that Kevin has worked with. Right. Right. I mean, and so I mean, so to a certain extent, this film kind of suffers from that. I mean, it's hilarious because it's still it's filmed in the Quick Stop, and you know, without giving away too much, right? Because uh, the Quick Stop is a character in Kevin Smith's work as well, right? 
you know, and um, and the dude from um, Clerks Two, I don't know his name, but the he was hilarious. Coming, you know, oh Elias, Elias. Every time yeah. you see Elias, he's 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 got a different style of um, dress. I mean, he starts off as a, as a Christian and he goes over to the dark side. And there's a time when he shows up at like Rocky from Rocky Horror and. Uh, it's just every time he comes on camera and with his sidekick there, they're, they're just, you know, it's, it's a laugh moment. Right. So. Well, and they, and they played the two of them as, as the news Jay and silent Bob. Yeah, too, pretty right? much. Like, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, well, yeah, the one guy doesn't even have, doesn't even speak. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, the character, the actor who plays that sort of silent Bob at junior role. That's actually his um, daughter, Harley's boyfriend, Austin. Oh, is it? Oh, okay. In real life. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And even she's in it too, which is kind of, kind of hilarious. Well, she comes back and plays the part that she played in the last J.M. Silent Bob movie, right? She plays um, Jay's daughter, right at the end, right? Yeah, but yeah, like I say, it's a it's it's an interesting movie. I noticed that it uh, it actually dropped today on the iTunes yeah, it's store, digital, yeah, so yeah. you can get the digital if you want to watch it. Uh, or Kevin, I think he said he's still got like twenty more stops on this this tour where he's taking it out and talking about it, which is always an interesting experience to hear what the filmmaker has to say about the film. I always enjoy those those opportunities. Uh, you know, it's it's definitely worth a watch. There's lots of good stuff there. It's it's definitely a, a, a thinky piece at times. You know, not necessarily the clearest thinky piece, but um, but yeah, it's it, again certainly worth a watch, especially if you are somebody who enjoy, has enjoyed Kevin's work in the past. It's not as bonkers off the rails as things like Tusk and uh, Yoga Hosers. It's certainly more more mainstream approachable. You could watch this with a lot of different types of people and, and find some enjoyment in it. There are, you know, moments where you, you, yeah, you'll laugh out loud and there are moments where you might roll a tear. And as I say, that maybe as an artist, that's what he, what he wanted. And that's why it works. Uh, Ultimately, I think for me, as he pointed out, you know, Clerks 1 is a film. Clerks 2 is, you know, a three act, well-made Hollywood type movie with a happy ending. This movie is, you know, elements from both. But I'm not sure that it worked as well as I was hoping it would. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I was there primarily to see him talk, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, and it's interesting because, like, there were two shows in Toronto. So, and the thing is, he takes questions from the audience. So you never know where he's going to go, right? Uh, yeah. So, even although I he... think he, I think he deliberately directs the comments back to where he wants the conversation to mm-hmm. go. Perhaps. Perhaps. I, I've I've been lucky enough in my career to interview Kevin a, a few times, and. um spend some time with him he's he plays the fool well on stage but he's a very shrewd and and smart person um having having had a chance to sort of poke away at his brain a little bit he's he's not a dummy at all he he, he plays the fool pretty good but he's not a fool cool well i guess that's it for another week so hey jonathan people want to get in touch with you wherever they find you you can always find me on twitter and instagram as at jpk news and Jaime, if people want to get in touch with you, wherever they find you? I'm on Twitter as at DevTheHair. And as I usually say, my name is Timitra, T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A, and on the Twitter machine is where you'll find me. Until next time, we'll see you in the future. Bye. 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 You've been listening to the SpotCast Podcast. If you want to find out more about the podcast or see the episode show notes, visit the SpotCast website at SpotCast.com. You can get in touch with us on the website or follow us on Twitter at SpotCast. If you have feedback or questions, send us a tweet with the hashtag AskSpotCast. If you like the show, 
please consider recommending us to a friend, writing a review on iTunes, or pledging any amount at patreon.com slash spotcast. You can find details on how to help us on our website, spotcast.com slash sponsor us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the future. put this in the show but what what like the rosario Daw- dawson character not having passed spoilers away Jaime. spoilers coming spoilers are coming was that i'm gonna <laughs> drop spoilers on you what, what, what was that like was was that like like do we did we know that was the case nope. or are we just nope. part of this part of the story okay all right that's all i have to say yep yeah, I mean, it's. I always struggle with this. You know, one of the to, to draw the comparison and, and one that you'll definitely know, Jaime, is is Aliens Three, right? So Alien One, a classic. Alien Two doubles down and is, in my mind, probably a better film. And they're both made by genius filmmakers, mm-hmm. right? So we got Ridley Scott doing the first one. We got James Cameron doing the second one. The third one, you're like, well, how are they gonna how are they gonna top this? And then they actually have. Um, Oh, what's his name? The guy who did uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and Seven and all that. Uh, oh, what's his name? <sighs> That's going to bug me. Yeah, anyways, I'll guy. look it up. But that guy. Yeah. That guy. Fincher. David Fincher. Do that. And the first thing he does in the first like 10 minutes of the movie is basically undo the ending of the previous movie by, you know, this, this in Aliens. And I, I, again, please, I'm not trying to spoil anything. I happen to know some people who haven't seen Alien and Aliens, but. It's use your discretion. Been many years. Come on. It, it has, but then as a parent of a teenagers, you know, when he, yeah, anyways. Um, so, spoiler alert, here you go. At the end of Aliens, the only people that make it out are Ripley and the little girl and parts of the robot. The first thing that happens in part three is it crash lands on the penal colony, right? And the little girl is dead. Like the whole point of that movie was, you know, get your hands off her, you whatever, and like saving the little girl who was like the last survivor of this colony, and Ripley saves her, and, t- and then then the first thing they do in the fourth, third movie is kill off this little girl, and you know, and sort of change the trajectory of that movie in your mind forever because you what you want to remember is you know yeah Ripley fought hard, she gets that big uh, you know. Uh, it's called load lifter suit and has the big fight with the, the alien queen and throws her at the airlock. And it's this great scene. And, you know, and then she and the little girl survive and you're like, cool. And then that's immediately undone by the next movie. That's kind of how I felt about this one was, you know, after sort of, you know, years of tumult and, you know, things not going right. And we see sort of, you know, the characters sort of vacillating between happiness mm-hmm. and sadness. Clerks 2 kind of ends on a happy note and ends with these characters sort of hopefully with a bright future ahead of them. And then in this one, it sort of starts with, oh, by the way, remember how that one ended? We've decided to undo a bunch of these parts from that movie. And I found myself being like, huh, 
that's a huge bummer. And it sat on me for the whole movie. Interesting. That's an interesting analogy to make yeah. there. Like, did you, I mean, obviously you're, you're a little bit younger than us, Jaime. Did you have any of those feelings? I mean, for, for me, watching Aliens, Aliens was like, a, go see it in the movie theater, theater movie, and then so was part three. So there was time in between, but it's still kind of stuck in my craw of like, oh, that's weird that like the first thing you do in the first scene of the third movie is undo what happened in the second movie. Like, do you ever remember having any complex feelings of like, oh, that's kind of a weird thing to do after making such a big deal of saving this one character to kill yeah, that character? I, I do remember going to Alien 3 with my cousin, and I think we, we did talk about that. I was like, oh, that's messed up that these guys didn't make it from the, the other movie. It's like, because we had uh, probably not processed it as a, uh, you know, like a, like a dishonor to the characters sort of the thing nothing so complex but more like oh i thought hicks was gonna do something cool this time too because like you know he and ripley know what's going on they can they can tag team this thing going forward right that's we were looking at a more disappointment than it was a um you know film criticism sort of angle yeah 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 like i say it, it, it for me that's sort of where this movie begins is it sort of starts by like in the first couple of minutes it sort of undoes some of the stuff that was sort of the conclusionary notes of the last one and you're like wait what and it just sort of sets you back on your heels and i'm sure that's again i'm sure that's artistic intent but it also sort of disrupted my good feelings about the experience in a way that i'm still sort of trying to process interesting i like this. Uh, yeah i don't know i like the story he told uh, about james cameron with the with the, the movie studio when he wanted to make alien oh, that was funny yeah he says he walked yeah. up, walked up to this to the screen and he wrote on the wall alien and then he put an S, and then he drew two lines through the S to turn it into a dollar sign. And the movie, movie the producers went, oh, we get it. <laughs> Take this concept, make a second one with more aliens, make bags full of money. Well done. Yes, definitely. Cool. All right. So now that we've, uh, we, with our one day delay, we've, we've knocked Lord of the Rings off the board. We've knocked She-Hulk off the board. So next week we're down to, uh, we're, then there were three and we're, we're closing down on a couple of these things. We've only got two episodes left of, of, uh, House of the Dragon and two episodes left of Lower Decks. And then what happens after that? Uh, well, we still got Andor for a while and Prodigy comes back at the end of this month. So we segue from, uh, we end lower decks and then pick up prodigy the following mm. week no or is it the following week or is it the same day i think it might be the same day they overlap uh, is it the 27th yeah that's a thursday yeah. so it looks like it would overlap yeah because next week is the second last episode the final episode on the 27th and the 27th so when we get the first episode of prodigy so we'll have one double up star trek week and so that series carries us through October, November into December. And then from there, we pick up with, uh, is it Disco first? Disco, then Picard or Picard, then Disco? I can't remember the release date. But we're, we're basically, we're back on the season, 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 season run. And then I imagine it'll probably be into Strange New Worlds after that. So we'll probably probably have a good run. We might have a, a little bit of a break in there for, for a bit. But I think it's pretty much a straight run with Star Trek stuff until spring. Really? Okay. You love it. You know you love it. Yeah, says the person who has to edit the show. I love it. <laughs> I was going to say, tune in next week, the return of the uh, Canadian Health Information Podcast next week. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. Good first episode. We're talking about the uh, healthcare workforce shortages in Canada. 
That's a sizzling topic. I got some bad news for you. Not looking good. The amount of healthcare workers compared to the amount of people who are your age and older who are going to need their services. What are you going to do? Uh, die in a hallway waiting for service. That would be my guess. Yeah. Well, just don't take me to the, to the hospital. Cool, cool. <laughs> home surgery kit. Here we go. Yeah. K-Tail home surgery You know, kit. I'm not suggesting anything might uh, unfortunate happen to you, but maybe think about getting one of those house defibrillators. Just, just saying. Hmm. Or just keep a plug with, like, something you don't like attached to it. You can just pull the, the leads out and just... <laughs> Anyway, on that happy note, I gotta go. So, okay. talk to you guys next time. Till next time. All right. Bye. Take care, guys. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.